When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, and this week of all weeks, I'm grateful to join you for Scripture Study. In fact, I should say that this week and next week and the week after, because these three weeks are the most important three we'll spend perhaps anywhere in Scripture. Now, this week we are in the Garden of Gethsemane. Next week we are at the, at the cross of Calvary. And the following week we are at an empty tomb. We will be studying atonement and then crucifixion and then resurrection. In some ways, all three of them fit under the broad umbrella of the atonement. Everything Jesus did to make us at one with him and with the Father, the potential of becoming at one with one another, the way he prayed in John 17 last week, this is the, the cornerstone of the building. This is the keystone of the arch. This is the epicenter of eternity. And everything else that we've been studying these last three years, and we've still got another half a year to go beyond this, how everything that we've been doing centers on what we'll be discussing these next three weeks. So can I ask an interest in your prayers? I have been praying hard uh, and trying to prepare myself to be able to teach this and to do, to do justice in some way to the topics that we'll be, that we'll be talking about. Uh, doing them complete justice will be impossible. There is no way that we can wrap our minds and hearts around the atonement in a way that that could possibly compare with what Jesus actually did. In fact, when you look at the scriptural record, especially today, it's incredibly sparse as far as what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, in some ways, we can't we can't figure it out. We can't wrap our minds around it. We're going to do our very best to to try to see what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John offer us by way of faint recollection, peering through the, the darkness, trying to make sense of what Jesus did in these final days. To understand a little bit of what this is all about, number one, we need to pray and pray hard. We should fast and try to prepare ourselves for understanding. In some ways, though, the best thing we can do is to repent. Because it's through our own repentance that we can truly come to know the effect of the atonement. And in some ways, that's the best way to understand it. By their fruits, ye shall know them. Well, if we're bringing forth fruits, meat for repentance, what fruit is the Lord offering us through the atonement? It's the fruit of the tree of life. It's the love of God made manifest. Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And that's what we'll be studying these next three weeks. In fact, as I was praying before hitting record today, I just thought back to times that I have repented. Uh, major times. In some ways we repent every day, we ought to. But times where it really felt like I needed to join the Savior in the garden and, and view his death, to borrow Jacob's phrase, to understand what he went through for my sake, to have my own Enos-type experiences where your soul hungers 
and you raise your voice high until it reaches the heavens. And more than anything else, you repent of your sins and shortcomings. The way Enos experienced it, he said his guilt was swept away. And as a result, he came to know God in ways he hadn't before. For us to truly understand the atonement, we have to access its power. We have to become at one with God through the at-one-ment. And as we do so, we come to know not how Jesus did it, because that's far beyond our reach, but rather the fact that he did it and that he did it out of love for us. In fact, one other verse from Jacob chapter 1, that same passage that speaks of viewing Christ's death, we'll see that more next week. But to view his atonement, this verse popped into my head as I was praying just a few minutes ago. Jacob chapter 1, verse 4. As Nephi has passed the baton down to Jacob and he's beginning to write, he, he lays down the ground rules once again that he received from his elder brother. And this were, this, these were part of his, those instructions. Verse 4, If there were preaching which was sacred, or revelation which was great, or prophesying, that I should engraven the heads of them upon these plates, and touch upon them as much as it were possible, for Christ's sake, and for the sake of our people. It's interesting to think of Jacob knowing, I've got a mission ahead of me. And it will be a scriptural one. It's one I need to engrave the the most important things I possibly can. Not just any old preaching, but the most sacred type. Not any old revelation, but the revelation that was great. Prophecies, yes, include them, but include the very best of the best. The heads of them. Because we don't have space for anything else. And so Jacob was going to do the best he could with that. Well, as far as preaching and revelation and prophesying, there is nothing greater than the atonement of Jesus Christ. And so to touch upon that as much as we can these next three weeks, and to do it, did you catch the phrase, for Christ's sake and the sake of the people? I'm constantly praying that these lessons will be a blessing to you, that they will be given as a gift for your sake, but also that they might be given as a gift to God, and that we might act upon the principles that we learn for Christ's sake, and not just for our own. It's an interesting thing to wrap, to wrap your heads around. What's it mean to do something for Christ's sake? And in some ways, all he's asking is that we implement the atonement, that we receive what he's offering, and that we accept it in the same spirit with which it is given. If we can repent of our sins, if nothing else today, if it reassures us that Christ is a welcoming Redeemer, and that He stands with arms outstretched and invites us to come unto Him, to repent of our sins and be forgiven of them. If, if we can receive that spiritual reassurance today and next week and the week after, then Christ's atonement will have been worth it, worth the infinite cost He paid. And so that's my prayer. I pray that this lesson may be for Christ's sake and for ours, that we may come unto him, know that he welcomes us, know that he... Remember that phrase from this Last Supper, with desire, have I desired to partake of this last Passover with you? Well, with desire, he desires for us to come unto him, to become at one with him. And so we are going to try to understand from with the help of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, 
all that we can about what happened in Gethsemane and Calvary and at the empty tomb. Uh, with that, we are going to start with something difficult. If you recall, at the Last Supper, we kept switching back and forth between the natural man and the spiritual man. And Jesus prophesying that someone would betray him, but then switching to this glorious sacrament that he gives. Uh, to see the apostles wrestling over superiority, and then seeing Jesus humble himself to wash the apostles' feet. We are going to see a similar swing today as we start with Jesus speaking with Peter about a denial and then seeing Jesus suffer for denials, Peter's as well as the, those of all of us in the Garden of Gethsemane. We will see Judas come through the shadows and betray Jesus today. We will see Jesus rise above that betrayal. We'll see him brought before the Jewish authorities. Well, authority, put that in quotes. <laughs> authority was before them, with a capital A. But to see his response to them, there will be light shining through the darkness this week. And, and it's a glorious scene. Now, what, we're, what we start with in the book of John took place before he left the upper room. This was the last thing that he talks about in John chapter 13, uh, which we, would, we covered two weeks ago. Uh, and a, a short conversation Jesus has with Peter in the midst of his discussion about loving one another as he loves them. He then continues on and teaches about the, the comforter in chapter 14, and then gets up and leaves the upper room to descend to the garden. That's John's version. In the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is a conversation that Jesus has with Peter on the way. They've already left. They sang their closing hymn. They leave the upper room. They begin their downward descent. And along the way, Jesus talks about a certain descent that Peter himself will make. And there we can begin. We'll, we'll use John's version as our, as our home base. And so turn to John 13. And in verse 36 through 38, here's how the conversation unfolds. Simon Peter said unto him, and I love that he's given both names because we're going to see him torn between both identities today. Uh, we talk about Christ's own contraries, that he is both divinity and humanity perfectly fused into one. In a way, that describes all of us, uh, although much more on the human side and much less on the divine. But here we are wrestling with our, our weaker selves, trying to live up to divine expectations. And Simon, one who hears, who'd been given that glorious nickname, Peter, the rock, which one will he be today? Will he be more Simon with all of those struggles? Or will he truly become rock-like and someone that the Lord can found his church upon? Well, we're going to see that. But Simon Peter says to Jesus, Lord, whither goest thou? This is the middle of that conversation that they've been having about Jesus saying, I will leave, and where I go, you cannot come. Well, Peter is asking pointedly, well, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Now, we're going to see a much clearer foreshadowing at the end of John 21, where, especially with the help of hindsight, John will let us know when Jesus is being very specific about Peter's following him specifically to a cross. Here we see similar foreshadowing. You, you will follow me, Peter. Just not now. Not today. 
The day will come, however, where you will come follow me in a way that you couldn't possibly imagine. One that will daunt you, believe me. But this sense of me leaving and you following, well, let's see how that's actually going to play out. Because Peter, good old, and this is his Peter side speaking, okay, the rock, said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Oh, maybe he is a little bit more aware than we might think of what lies ahead for Jesus. And I will join you today. I will follow you to the grave if such is asked of me. Now, Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Interesting question. Is that really what you're intent on doing? Because if so, that's exactly what will happen. Just not yet. Not today. In fact, let's step a little bit away from your Peter side and, and remind you of the Simon that still lurks within by giving you this prophecy. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, the cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. How's that for Peter overconfidence when there is still Simon's struggles down below? Remember when James and John naively came to Jesus and Jesus said, when they're asking about, well, can we be on your right hand and your left? And he says, well, I have a baptism to be baptized with. It's one that daunts even me. It's one that straightens me till it be accomplished. Remember? And we'll see that straightening today. But when he says to Peter, to, excuse me, to James and John, these sons of thunder, are you able to partake of my cup? It's more bitter than you could possibly imagine. Are you able to be baptized in blood alongside me? And naively, cavalierly, overconfidently, James and John say, of course, of course we're able. Well, we'll see about that. You get a similar sense from Peter here. Um, are, are you able? Will you die with me? Well, of course. Of course I can do that. And Jesus, well, something else is going to happen between now and then that will, that will show you who you are and who you yet need to become. Sometimes we need to be startled into recognizing our Simon before thinking that we are fully rocks when we're not quite there yet. In some ways, I sense Jesus saying to Peter here and to James and John then, that earlier, you have no real clue what you signed up for. So, careful not to be so cavalier. Be sober, is what Alma kept saying to his three sons. Think hard, take this seriously. Count the cost and be fully ready to move forward when the time has come. Now, Matthew and Mark's version of this conversation is almost identical to one another. It takes place right after they sing that closing hymn, like I said, and begin their descent to Gethsemane. But this is how their conversation is recorded. Matthew 26, verse 31. Then said Jesus unto them, all of them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. Now, if there's no shepherd, since he's been smitten, what, where does that leave the sheep? It leaves them without protection. Do you remember where, where David, as the young shepherd, is out in the fields ready to take on the lion and the bear to be able to preserve his flock? Well, if there is no David, in this case, if there is no good shepherd, if he's been smitten, then the sheep are fully exposed to the lions and the bears. 
They are fully exposed to the wolves in sheep's clothing. We'll meet some of them tonight. In fact, it reminds me of that word he used last week when he kept reassuring his apostles, I will not leave you. I will not leave you comfortless. And remember the Greek word for comfortless was orphanos. I won't make you orphans. I will, you will always have me. And yet for a time tonight, when I am smitten, you'll feel like orphans. You will feel comfortless. But please know that I have not abandoned you. I've simply been smitten and you end up getting scattered. When he says, for it is written, by the way, he's quoting scripture. And sure enough, it's going to be Matthew that reminds us of that, since he's always pointing to his Jewish audience whenever Jewish scripture is fulfilled. This is Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. And I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. Oh, these apostles were still little ones compared to Jesus. Little children, he had called them before. And sure enough, they will be scattered later tonight. If you also remember this phrase from last week, John chapter 16, verse 32, Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. I'm not leaving you alone, but you will leave me. And we're about to see that. Verse 32, then, Jesus says, But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee, I love that Jesus is already looking past Gethsemane, past Calvary, onto the resurrection, focusing on the joy that's on the other side of sorrow. He knows where he's headed. He knows what's about to happen. But to reassure his apostles, I will rise from what I'm going through. I have condescended and I'm about to descend below all things, but I will rise again. And after that, oh, just you wait. You'll see me again. Not, not orphaned at all. I'll meet you back in Galilee. Peter then speaks up and says to Jesus, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. You see, in the John version, it's much more personal. It seems like a conversation along the way, just with, between Jesus and Peter. The other ten apostles, Judas is already gone, right? But the other ten are somewhere behind as they're making their way to the garden. And Peter just asks about this. Why, where are you going? Why can't I follow? I will. I'll go anywhere. But in the Matthew and Mark version of this, it's interesting to see him compare himself. We've talked about the four C's before and, not, and the danger about comparing and competing and complaining and criticizing. Well, we see some comparison in, and maybe some competition in what Peter is saying here. When Jesus says, you're going to be offended, all ye that's the, that, the old southern all y'all, okay? All of you apostles will be offended by me tonight. And you're all going to be scattered to the wind once the shepherd is smitten. And here's Peter, the only one who was given the nickname The Rock, feeling, well, these other guys, yeah, I could see that happening, but not me. It, interesting that he puts himself in a different position. When you combine a sense of invincibility which Peter feels, with a sense of superiority, which Peter seems to be feeling as well, that is a dangerous, in fact, that's a fatal combination. I can handle anything because I'm stronger than anyone else. That actually starts to sound a lot like Samson, that I can put myself in harm's way because I'm strong enough to get out of it. And here you get a similar sense from the rock, who's not fully rock-like quite yet. 
And Jesus knows it and points it out. Verse 34, Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, and verily means truly. So Peter, Simon, sit down for a second, slow down and realize what, who you really are. Verily I say unto thee, that this night, right on the heels of this, this statement of overconfidence, this night, before the cock crows, and Mark's version, it says, before the cock crows twice. So you'll even get oh, kind of a reminder. You'll get an early warning signal to, to remind you of this. But before the second crowing of the cock, thou shalt deny me thrice. Now, Peter said unto him, and Mark says, he spake the more vehemently. And that sounds a lot like Peter too, right? Just like, oh, no way. There's no way that's going to happen. So as vehemently, as determinedly as he possibly can, he says this to Jesus, though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. There's no way. I will go with you to prison. I will go with you to the grave. I will die before I deny. With all the energy of his soul, he is saying this. And he's not alone in saying it. Likewise also said all the disciples, Matthew tells us. Well, at least the apostles are acting as one. At least they are following their intrepid leader. Yes, they're overconfident. And, and we'll see that play out in just a moment. But it's a start. And to be honest, it's one that they will fulfill. Not that night. There's still some growing up in God to do. But the reality is that they will all follow Jesus to the grave. They will be gathered after their scattering. They will come back to the Lord they love. And they will be sent forth in the book of Acts. To, to preach the gospel to all nations, and they'll do it boldly, even facing death as a result. Now, it's here I want to remind us all of a talk from Spencer W. Kimball. It was one he gave at BYU back in 1971, and it was called Peter, My Brother. Uh, it's, we're going to refer to this, especially at the end of today's lesson, when we see Peter deny Jesus, when we see this prophecy fulfilled, despite B Peter's best intentions to avoid it. And President Kimball in this talk, it's a famous one. Uh, it's one that we sometimes misquote a little bit or make certain assumptions based on what President Kimball said, but without President Kimball actually saying it. So we need to be a little bit more careful with President Kimball's words here. Uh, but I at least want to introduce the talk to you. If you want to read the whole thing, it's, it's powerful. It's online. But let me introduce it with what President Kimball said near the beginning. Some time ago, a newspaper in a distant town carried an Easter Sunday religious editorial by a minister who stated that the presiding authority of the early day church, namely Peter, fell because of self-confidence, indecision, evil companions, failure to pray, lack of humility, and fear of man. He then concluded, let us as people, especially those who are Christians and claim to abide by the word of God, not make the same mistakes and fall as Peter fell. Now pause there for a second before President Kimball goes on. Because that list that this minister gave us, oh yes, some of them admittedly I can recognize in Peter. Well, at least his Simon side. But others, ah, it feels like you're, you're piling on in an unfair way. And if, if I sense that, it, it was felt even more deeply by, by President Kimball. 
He was Elder Kimball at the time and an apostle defending a fellow apostle. He took it personally because he felt personally connected to Peter. And so he says this, As I read this, I had some strange emotions. I was shocked, then I was chilled, then my blood changed its temperature and began to boil. I felt I was attacked viciously, for Peter was my brother, my colleague, my example, my prophet, and God's anointed. I whispered to myself, that is not true. He is maligning my brother. And so I want all of us to be careful not to malign our brother, Peter, over some of the things that happened that we'll study today. We will come back to President Kimball and his, with his help when we get to the actual denials. But for now, hold on to this, okay? I'm grateful that President Kimball was rushing to the rescue of Simon Peter. In fact, Jesus himself was doing the same. If you go to the Luke version of this conversation, this is Luke 22, verse 31 and 32. The Lord said, Simon, Simon. I love it when Jesus repeats a name twice. Remember when he's weeping over the city, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And when he's trying to calm a troubled and overly careful Martha, Martha, Martha. So here it's Simon, Simon. And remember, it's Simon both times, not Simon Peter. It's as if the Lord is recognizing the Simon side at the exclusion of, of the Peter half and letting him know you're not quite yet the rock you intend to be. Don't worry, you'll get there. By the time we get to the book of Acts uh, in a couple of weeks, we will see a Peter with no Simon left. He is fully the rock that God intended him to be. But not yet. So pay close attention when the Lord speaks to him. What name does he use? Here it's Simon, Simon. And he says to him, Behold, Satan hath desired to have you. In some translations, desired is demand. It is stronger language in the original Greek. It reminds some scholars of what uh, the scene at the beginning of the book of Job, when Satan comes to the Lord and, and basically demands Job. I want to sift him. I want to try him. I want to see if he really will follow you when, when following comes at a great cost. Well, similar situation, Satan desires, demands to have Simon Peter, that he may sift you as wheat. Famous phrase. Can you picture the devil just running his fingers through Simon's soul, kind of picking him up and hoping that he can just... <laughs> sift him through his fingers. Now, in the JST of this, Satan has a bigger target. In the inspired version, it says, Satan hath desired you that he may sift the children of the kingdom as wheat. So if I can put my crosshairs on the chief apostle, then it's the whole kingdom that I can control. I can sift the children through my fingers. But notice the Lord's response. Recognizing what Simon Peter is up against, Jesus says, But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now think about all that Jesus said in that brief, brief conversation. Simon, Simon, do you know what you're up against? Can we just be real for a moment 
and recognize your own weakness. Please take that into consideration. Let it humble you to the very core. Acknowledge your unworthiness before God at all times is what Alma said to his potentially overconfident son, Shiblon. Put your trust in me, not in yourself, and recognize what you're up against. Tonight it will seem like soldiers and chief priests and Annas and Caiaphas and Tomorrow it will seem like Pilate and all the assembled hosts of Rome. But that's nothing compared to what we're really facing, Simon. And that's Satan himself. The prince of darkness, the prince of this world, and he seems to have this world under control right now. Please understand that you have to be stronger than you've ever been. Stronger than you think you are now. You're going to have to live up to these divine expectations, but don't worry. I'm praying for you. In fact, in just a few minutes, I will truly be praying for you in a way that no one has ever prayed for you before. I will be praying for you to overcome the weakness that is still holding you back as Simon. I will be praying for you to gain the strength to become the Peter I've envisioned within you. I've seen down deep since the day we first met. I will pray for you that you might be forgiven for the denials that I know are on their way. And more than anything, as he says here, I will pray that thy faith fail not. Because we live in a day where faith seems to be faltering among so many. That is a powerful prayer. And if you have loved ones that are struggling in their faith, if you have sons and daughters who seem to be prodigal for the time being, please know that right alongside you as you pray for them, the Savior is praying for them as well, that their faith fail not. In fact, he's praying that your faith fail not as well. Remember that haunting question that he asks in Luke 18, verse 8? When the Son of Man returns, shall he find faith upon the earth? He's not just asking the question. He's praying for an affirmative response. He's praying that our faith fail not. And if we can have that firm faith, that unshaken foundation then the Lord knows he can build upon it. No wonder he needs Peter to be strong so he can be the rock, so he can build upon a foundation of prophets and apostles, himself being the chief unshaken cornerstone. Peter, Simon, you've got to become Peter. You have to have unshakable faith. Because if your faith is unfailing, then I can count on you for other people to count on you too. You see that last phrase? When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now, on the one hand, I can picture Peter pushing back and say, well, what, do you, what do you mean, when I am converted? Oh, I'm converted. I'm all in. I'm fully committed. Yes, I know you're fully committed. But fully converted, there's something more there. What are you talking about? I have a testimony. Remember what I said at, at Caesarea Philippi? Do you remember there next to the great rock? <laughs> Mount Hermon itself, and you called me the rock there because of my testimony? You told me, flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto me. 
And you're right. The Father in heaven did. When I said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, I meant it. I'm, I have a testimony. I know, Peter. I know you do. But conversion is even a step beyond testimony. Testimony is one thing. Transformation is another. And to say that you know, that's a beautiful start. But to fully be, those are steps that still lie ahead. You're on the path. Continue. And when you fully arrive, when thou art converted, changed, a new creature in Christ, when the Simon has fully been, <laughs> been burned out of you in the refiner's fire, then you'll be at a position where you can fully strengthen your brethren. And they'll need that strength. They'll need your strength. The same applies to all of us. Wherever we happen to be on this process of learning and living, of believing and becoming, it's when we arrive at that place of true conversion, and it's Jesus that is converting us, changing us, transforming us into people like him. When we get to that point, and it's a process, an eternal one, we'll be able to show other people the way and strengthen them along that way. Now, even that seems too much for Peter. He thinks he's already there. He thinks he's closer than he, than he is. And so in verse 33, he says to him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee. Right now, not someday, right now, I'm ready to go with thee, both into prison, if that's where we're headed, to death, if that's the ultimate result. But Jesus, gently, I'm sure, holds him back and says, I tell thee, Peter, <laughs> with all your rock-like resolve, yes, I'll call you Peter, since that's who you feel like you are right now. The cock shall not crow this day, before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Now there's a more specific denial prophesied. Not a denial of Jesus' divinity. Peter will never go there. But a denial of their relationship. You'll deny that you know me. And that's perhaps the best definition of when you reach true conversion, is to fully know me. In some ways, perhaps it will be true what you say when you deny knowing me. Because as I said last week in John 17, another time when I was praying that your faith fail not, when I was praying for all of you apostles and all the disciples that will someday hear your words, this is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And though your three years worth of familiarity with me definitely counts for something, do you fully know me? Even post-transfiguration, do you really know who I am? So yes, perhaps your denial will have an element of truth. You don't fully know yet who I am. But you will. <laughs> You'll see me. Verse 35 through 36, then, Jesus says to his apostles, When I sent you without purse and scrip and shoes, lacked ye anything? Remember that? Way back in Matthew chapter 10, I first sent out, commissioned you and sent you forth and promised I'd provide. Well, did I? Did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. 
So Jesus has always come through in the past. Hold on to that faith. I'll provide for you now in the present. And on to it and a glorious future. Then said he unto them, but now, so we're going to shift somewhat. He that hath a purse, let him take it. And likewise his scrip. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Now this seems really out of character. Wait, what? That's not the instruction you gave us before. I know. And that's why I'm reminding you of that instruction. You followed it and I came through for you, didn't I? Yes. Well, I have some different instructions for you now. You're going to need purse and scrip. In fact, you're going to need weapons. So if you don't have some, get some. Even if it comes at the price of your own garment, get a sword or two. It's interesting because sometimes the Lord asks us to rely fully on him. And other times, there's a contrary here. He asks us to rely a little bit more upon ourselves. There's times where he'll provide uh, solutions to our problems. And other times he asks us to figure things out. Remember the brother of Jared? I'll tell you what to do for air. You tell me what you want to do for light. In this circumstance, yeah, you're going to need to be ready, fully prepared. So muster your courage. Act on your preparation. Grab the sword. And in this case, more than anything, the sword of the Spirit and the Word of God. That's the armor of God. And you better be fully clothed in it. If you are, then get ready for the fight of your life. It's coming tonight. Then verse 37 and 38. For I say unto you that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And then he quotes a scripture that he is feeling keenly in this moment. And he was reckoned among the transgressors. That's the phrase that is running through Jesus' mind. He then goes on, For the things concerning me have an end. So this is it. It's, it's go time. And they, the apostles, said in, re in response, Lord, behold, here are two swords. We're ready. Do we need to go buy more? And Jesus said unto them, It is enough. Two swords will be sufficient. Again, maybe a nod to what Paul will teach us later. That one sword is the Spirit, and the other sword is the Word. Now, notice what Jesus was quoting. The scripture that was running around his mind. Remember before Joseph and Hiram went to Carthage, they had a scripture in their mind too, from the book of Ether? Well, this one comes from the book of Isaiah. So many messianic messages there. And this one? one of the greatest of all, from Isaiah chapter 53. Remember that chapter is saturated in, in the Savior. This is the suffering servant song that Isaiah writes. And it's the one that describes Jesus as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It's the one that prophesies that with his stripes we'll, we will be healed. That our, he'll be chast the chastisement of our peace will be upon him. This incredible role reversal. We deserve the punishment. He will take our place. We'll see more of that. We saw some two weeks ago in the washing of the feet. We'll see today in the, in the garden when Jesus takes all, upon our, all of our sins upon him. We'll see it next week in the crucifixion when Christ takes, Christ takes Barabbas' place on the cross. And we'll see it the following week in the resurrection when Jesus takes Joseph of Arimathea's place in the tomb. It's role reversal every single time. And that's what Isaiah 53 is prophesying. But the specific verse that Jesus quotes is verse 12, which says, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, 
That's the ultimate. That's the joy on the other side of sorrow. That's what Jesus is looking forward to when I rise again and see you in, in Galilee. But what does he have to go through along the way? Isaiah says, because he hath poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors. You see, that's the phrase that he's quoting here. I will be reckoned among the transgressors. Saying That's what Isaiah is getting at. Okay, He was numbered with the transgressors. Assume that he was just like everyone else, a sinner like the rest of us. But he wasn't. He was simply bearing our sins. That's how Isaiah ends. He bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You remember when we talked about Isaiah last year and I described the Old Testament as Christ's patriarchal blessing in a way? Well, this was the climax of the of the blessing. And in Isaiah 53, Jesus knows full well who it's talking about. And it's time to fulfill that prophecy. It's time to be counted as if he were a transgressor, numbered among them, despite the fact that he wasn't. And as he bears our sins and sufferings, as he pours out his soul unto death, he will fulfill prophecy. He'll fulfill them all. And with that, it's on to the garden. It's incredibly sparse, the account. It's amazing that for something that is the epicenter of eternity, as I said, it's incredible how little is actually written about these, these moments. Can you blame them? On the one hand, they're sleeping through most of it. So what, do, do they have anything to say? Do they know what's going on? On the other hand, it's such a sacred moment that perhaps even they feel like they're treading on sacred ground and feel not only to remove their shoes, but to, to silence their tongues, to lay down their pens. I don't know how much of this I can actually say. It's something that has to be experienced. It's something that you have to feel the fruits of. And to make sense of what Jesus did in Gethsemane, we're going to, take, we're going to need all the help that we can get from Matthew and from Mark and from Luke and from John. But again, it's astonishing how little they actually say. Matthew gives us, depending on how you count the number of verses and when Gethsemane quote-unquote begins and when it ends, or when I should, what I should say, the, when the atonement begins and ends? And how do you do that when it's infinite and eternal? I don't know. Will it mark the end of this scene when Judas appears with his, his army? But what Matthew gives us between the entrance into Gethsemane and the arrival of Judas is about 11 verses, which is more than the 10 Mark gives us, or the 8 from Luke. It's so much more than the one verse that John gives us. And even that one verse seems to be missing everything. Why didn't they give us more? Think about this question with the help of Frederick Farrar. We've quoted him before. Uh, this is The Life of Christ, that incredible book that was an inspiration to Elder Talmadge when he wrote Jesus the Christ. As we approach Gethsemane, tagging along behind Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
trying to make sense of what it is that they're seeing. This is how Frederick Farrar explains the relative silence on the subject. We may not intrude too closely into this scene. It is shrouded in a halo and a mystery into which no footstep may penetrate. We, as we contemplate it, are like those disciples. Our senses are confused. Our perceptions are not clear. We can but enter into their amazement and sore distress. Half waking, half oppressed with an irresistible weight of troubled slumber, they only felt that they were dim witnesses of an unutterable agony, far deeper than anything which they could fathom. Dim witnesses? Yes, that's all we could ever hope to be. But to do our very best, with the help of those who tried to give us as much as they could muster, to make sense of what Jesus happened there in the shadows of Gethsemane. We were going we're gonna to go through these one by one, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in that order, to see everything they give us of Christ's experience in the garden. Matthew chapter 26, this part of the story begins in verse 36. And it says, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here, while I go and pray yonder. Now, Gethsemane, the name alone speaks volumes. Gethsemane means oil press. And that oil would likely have come from olives that had to be crushed under a weight so intense that oil would be pushed out of the olives. Think about the weight that Jesus is about to endure. And as he is crushed beneath it to the point that blood comes from every pore, yes, the oil press seems to be fitting. Oil, olive oil that is meant for light and health and healing. Oil that would require wise servants and righteous husbandmen. Oil to be given to wise virgins to fill their lamps as well as their vessels. Oil that would require, well, an olive yard that would require tending from good and faithful servants and a lord of the vineyard that would do anything for his garden, including all of the weeding and watering, all the digging and dunging, all of the planting and pruning, all of the gathering and grafting that would be required to bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. Gethsemane says it all. And Jesus goes there to pray. To pray for a Simon that needs to become a Peter. To pray that our faith fail not. To pray that his apostles may become one. And to all of those who hear his apostles from that moment forward, we can become one as well. He's got a lot to pray for. And a lot to suffer for. But he's come to the right place to do it. You who request priesthood blessings... And you, brethren, who give them, anytime that consecrated oil is brought forth, please remember what it represents. Just like it's not the water that washes away our sins. It just helps us remember him who descended below all things in order to forgive us and make us clean. The same thing with your olive oil. It's not the oil that heals people. 
It's simply a reminder of him who was crushed beneath the infinite load. So that from him could flow forth waters, rivers of healing oil. Do you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan and what was used to bind up the wounds of the man who had fallen among thieves? It was oil and wine. We saw the wine at the Last Supper and the sacrament, and Christ's blood as wine. Well, now we see the oil, the healing olive oil that flows out of a place like Gethsemane. In verse 37, Jesus took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, oh, just those three chief apostles, the ones he brought into the home of Jairus to see a miracle of life snatched from the jaws of death, the ones he brought up to the Mount of Transfiguration to be able to see him for who he really is, to hear the voice of God and the explanation of the death he would accomplish at Jerusalem. These sons of thunder, this rock, come with Jesus a little further. And it's then that Matthew tells us that Jesus began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Let that sink in. The heaviness Do you get a sense that the load of sin is beginning to rest upon this set of shoulders? Sorrowful, very heavy. Then saith he unto them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful. Even unto death tarry ye here and watch with me. Every word of that passage is worth pondering. He began to be sorrowful. The Greek word for that... The English in some ways doesn't do it justice because the Greek term involves such a depth of sorrow. This is an emotional pain, a grief that's so intense. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 3 when Eve is told that in sorrow she shall bring forth children. This is an agonizing intensity of suffering, not just some kind of emotional weight like I'm having a bad day. I'm sad. No, it's more than that. It's a suffering sorrow, like childbirth is. Remember, we saw that analogy Jesus used before. It's not just planting seeds and letting a seed die. It's a woman walking through the valley of the shadow of death, knowing about that what she's about to endure will be intense, will be death-defying, assuming that is she's able to defy death and bring forth life. She goes through it because of the joy that's placed before her, the the joy that comes on the other side of sorrow. And Jesus is doing the same thing here. But he's feeling that. He's feeling that intensity of sorrow. By the way, it's also the same word that's used to describe the rich young ruler's feelings when he walks away and leaves Jesus behind. When he went away sorrowful, there was an intensity there of realizing I couldn't bring myself to do it. One thing I lacked, and I couldn't overcome that one thing. And how devastated he was that in the the schism of soul, in the tug of war between natural man and spiritual man, in the rich young ruler's case, the natural man won. And he was devastated by that defeat. Well, Jesus is not going to be defeated, but he's feeling that kind of intense Sorrow. It's as if the, the father is saying to him, Son, one thing thou lackest. 
you have to partake of the bitter cup. You have to sell all that you have to give to the poor. And what do you have? You have your life, your perfect life. Lay it on the altar, give it up. And give it to all those who are poor in spirit, who come unto thee. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Oh, a rich young ruler. No one had the greater riches of eternity to walk away from. Ruler of heaven and earth. One thing he lacked, and he was prepared to give it. But he was suffering and sorrowing, as that reality set in. We have to wrestle with the contraries of Christ. We have to see the infinite and the intimate coming together in him. Divinity and humanity fully fused. But we have to honor the human side that is making this so difficult. From his father, he inherits the power of life. And we will see that next week and the week after on the cross and at the tomb. But from his mother, he inherits the power to die and to suffer. We'll see that this week and next. And both inheritances, this dual nature of Jesus, both were equally important. But pay it close attention to the son side of Christ, what he inherited from his mother, Mary, who understands the pain of childbirth and the joy that comes on the other side of sorrow. This mother hen that Jesus is now becoming to bring forth salvation into the world. This is what Jesus is dealing with. Now, what about the next phrase? Very heavy. Another way to translate that is deeply distressed. It means to feel fear, to lack courage, to be troubled. Did Jesus lack courage? No. But did he require a divine amount to Continue forward into the garden? Yes. Was he troubled? Remember in last week's lesson, he tells the apostles, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You believe in God, believe in me. Well, the son believes in the father, but he also knows what the father requires of him. And it is troubling. Bring back all those other verses that we've already seen. How my soul is straightened until it be accomplished. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. There is a schism of soul taking place within Jesus. As divinity and humanity are at odds with each other, tearing him apart. So, sorrowful, yes. Very heavy, of course. In the next phrase, when he says, he actually speaks up and expresses his emotions. And says, I am exceeding sorrowful. Here, the word for sorrow is the one just, the root of it is the same one as the word that was just used by Matthew. But when it's in Jesus' own mouth, the word is even more intense than what Matthew chose. When Jesus says exceeding sorrowful, the prefix to the word there is peri, as in perimeter. And a perimeter is the outside. It's what surrounds something. And so when you look at the Greek of this exceeding sorrowful, it's this idea of being completely surrounded by suffering and sorrow. There's no way out. 
And so I am exceeding sorrowful. I am encompassed about by the things that I have to face, and there's no getting around them. There's only going through. In the Jaredite barges, when it says that those ships would be encompassed about, swallowed up by the floods, that's the sense you get in this word, exceeding sorrowful. Or like Nephi in that beautiful psalm of Nephi, when he says, I am encompassed about, fully surrounded, pressed in, because of the temptations and the sins which do so easily beset me. Well, Jesus is starting to feel those temptations and sins press in upon him as well. Soul being crushed under the weight. When he says to the apostles, tarry ye here. The original word for that, tarry, a Greek verb, is the same one Jesus used on, in the sermon after supper, the farewell discourse, when he kept pleading with the apostles to abide in me. To just stay, to be permanent, to be a branch fully grafted into the true vine so that living water, true oil can flow into you. That's the sense of, please, tarry here. Just stay with me. Please do not leave me comfortless. Don't orphan me in my moment of greatest need. And then when he says, watch with me, the Greek literally means to stay awake. But it's not just kind of pinch yourself and make sure you're not dreaming. It's be alert, be attentive, do whatever it takes. You're on guard duty. You're the night watch and you cannot afford to fall asleep. Everything's riding on your ability to keep your eyes open. And so you apostles, please, please watch with me. Be vigilant. This is the same word used in Matthew 24 when Jesus talks about servants watching so that the thief does not come and break through at night. How vigilant will we be as we strive to stay awake and alert and attentive to see what Jesus is about to do for us, despite all of his sorrows. Having established what Jesus is feeling, verse 39 then tells you what he begins to do. He went a little further. And how little? The Greek word is micron. That's where micro comes from. So infinitesimally small. Remember what Jesus had said, stay here, tarry, watch with me while I go yonder. He intended to go further, and yet how much further could he go? Hardly at all. Just inching his way deeper into the darkness. Just a, a micro amount. That's as far as he could go before he fell on his face, Matthew says. Remember that famous painting of Gethsemane by Harry Anderson? It's the one most of us grew up with. And it shows Jesus praying, kneeling next to an olive tree. That's not what Matthew is describing. He's describing Jesus face down, prostrate on the ground. No strength to move much further forward. Not enough strength to be on his knees. He's on his face. 
Yes, this is crushed under an infinite load. And he prays. He prays saying, Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Please? Please? Can you picture a son, a perfect son that has never offended the father, pleading with him, with his entire sorrowful soul, please come up with a different way. Back in the upper room, he had given thanks for the cup. But this cup is bitter. Do I have to drink it? In your omniscience, can you not think of any other possible scenario where where this can work without me having to partake of this? That's what this son is begging his father for. But notice how he asks it from the start. If it be possible. We've been paying attention to the ifs we've seen in Scripture. We saw the ifs of Lucifer when he tempted Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. If you're really the Son of God, then, then make things easier on yourself. Hmm. We saw the if of the leper. If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. We saw the if of that desperate father, hoping that Jesus could heal his son when the apostles had failed to do so. If thou canst do anything, have mercy upon my son. What kind of an if is Jesus uttering? His is more like the lepers. If thou wilt, thou canst. I know you can. If it be possible, I'm begging for any other option than this one. Do you get a sense? How heavy this weight is? fell on his face. Do you get a sense how troubled even Jesus is by the weight of the world? He's not just praying that God will forgive us. He's not just praying that a magic wand will wipe our, our, our wish, our sins away into non-existence. No, this is Jesus wearing the towel. And the dirt from our feet have to go somewhere. And they're going on him. Please, Father, anything but this. And yet, what does he say? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. I wonder how much time it took between the first half of that verse and the second. You remember when we were talking about Peter's call to become a fisher of men? And when Jesus first tells him, oh, you haven't caught anything? Well, why are you fishing on that side of the boat? Try on this one. And Peter just looks at him in disbelief and is like, well, we've tried all night long and we're professional fishermen. We know when's a good time to fish. Nevertheless, he says, at thy command, we will let down the nets. He had his own plan. He thought it was supposed to go a certain way. And when he saw that the Lord was holding firm, Peter said that word, nevertheless, and then did it the Lord's way. We talked about that at the time and wondered if there was a pause with Jesus looking until Peter realized, oh, okay, you're serious about this. Fine, I'll do it your way. I wonder if there was 
a moment of silence. I wonder if there was a long, drawn-out sigh on the part of the Savior. I wonder, did he go straight from first half to second half and say, this is what I want, but thy will be done? Or was it a pleading and a, a begging, an imploring, a waiting? Is there any other way? And the Savior, working his way through every possible scenario, until perhaps he realized, as the Father already knew, there's no other way. For this hour came, or for this cause came I unto this hour. Therefore, not as I will, but as thou wilt. We talked years ago. I think it was the first Easter message we did on Unshaken. I taught a lesson called The Awful Arithmetic of the Atonement. It's a phrase from Elder Maxwell. And tried to make sense of the, of, the, of the arithmetic. Tried to make sense of what was being added and what was being subtracted. And where we saw multiplication and where we saw division. Well, do you sense the division of soul within Jesus? Separating the Father side from the Son side, separating the divinity from the humanity, the infinite from the intimate. Heavenly Father versus mortal Mary, and which side he'll lean into. There's division for you. Can you sense multiplication? Multiplying his sufferings and sorrows? Do you sense addition as the weight of the world is being added to his burden? to the point that he is crushed under its weight and he falls on his face. We'll see yet more elements to this arithmetic as we turn to Mark and Luke. But to just pause here and realize, please don't just fly through these hours in the garden. And it may have taken hours for this scene to unfold. Now in verse 40, at some point in the midst of all of this prayer, in the midst of all of this suffering and sorrowing, he comes up for air. In verse 40, he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep. What had he begged them for before he went that micrometer beyond them? He prayed, abide with me, tarry here, watch with me, be alert, be vigilant just be with me, please. Do not leave me comfortless. And yet here he finds them asleep. He saith unto Peter, which means he doesn't talk to James and John about this. He doesn't mention it to the other apostles that are there sleeping as well. He singles out Peter, who was more of a Simon at this moment. The angel does the same thing to Alma in the Book of Mormon. Doesn't mention Ammon and Aaron and Omner and Himni by name, but does speak directly to Alma. You're the leader. You know better. And you, Simon, you've got to be better than this. I'm praying for you. Could you please pray for me? I pray that your faith fail not. I should have been praying that your strength suffice as well. Please stay awake. Please watch with me. That's what he asks him. He says to Peter, what? Could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. And that temptation could be 
not just the kind we think of suffering against sin, but trials and adversity and the challenges that you're facing, please pray that you don't enter into that because now more than ever, I know what it feels like and what price must be paid when you succumb to those temptations and trials. The spirit indeed is willing, he says, but the flesh is weak. He knew that. More than ever, he knew the pull between natural man and spiritual man. He knew what the apostles were going through. He knew what the better angels of their nature wanted, but also knew what fallenness felt like. And as he was feeling all of those things himself, can you picture why he'd be so desperate to ask them to please be more careful, be more vigilant, fight temptation harder. I know what you're up against. I feel your weakness, your humanity. I know why you would succumb. But I also know what it costs to pay for that. And so please watch and pray. Please lean into the spirit and overcome the flesh. I'm doing that as we speak. Verse 42 then. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if... Here's another if. It's so similar to the first, but it's slightly different. Catch the shift. If this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. Very similar to what he said the first time. But do you sense the center of gravity shifting further and further toward the Father's will? That the first time, if it be possible, take this cup. And the Father didn't. So the Savior comes up for air and checks on his apostles. Just be with me, please. Emotional support if you can give me nothing else. And then he goes back and begins to suffer again and to sorrow again and to plead again. But this time, a little stronger. I'm getting a sense, Father, that there's no other way. And so I'll admit that from the very beginning. And if this cup cannot pass, if I don't drink, then so be it. Thy will be done. The reason I'm fascinated by this slight difference in language is because of something that the Bible Dictionary teaches us about the purposes of prayer. It's an incredible, there's so many amazing entries in the Bible Dictionary. The one about prayer is one of the best. And part of it says this, as soon as we learn the true relationship in which we stand toward God, namely God is our father and we are his children, then at once prayer becomes natural and instinctive on our part. Do you get a sense of that so far in these Gethsemane prayers? Jesus, the Son, knows that he is fully Son in this moment and has to tap into his Father's side. So he's reaching out to the Father himself for strength. It's natural. It's instinctive. He calls him Father, my Father. But then this next phrase from the Bible Dictionary, Many of the so-called difficulties about prayer arise from forgetting this relationship, which Jesus never forgot. That's why he's always willing to lay his will upon the altar. Give it over to his Father, to God. 
But then this statement, prayer is the act by which the will of the father and the will of the child are brought into correspondence with each other. Now, too often, we want that correspondence to come out in our favor. <laughs> it's our pleading with God so God changes his mind. And the harder we pray, the more he's convinced that, yes, we're the ones that know what's best. And so God changes his mind and places his will upon the altar. No, that, that's not the right way to think of it. In fact, if you really ponder that, who would want that? That's claiming omniscience on our part, as if we did know what was best for us. So no, what's the real purpose of prayer? It's to shift our center of gravity away from our will toward the will of the Father. And maybe it takes a time or two or three or infinity. Maybe it takes a day and a night of raising your voice high until it reaches the heavens. Maybe it takes all kinds of unanswered prayers until we finally realize who's the father in this relationship and who's the child. And then with that light on, we start to shift our prayers. We start to plead with the father to change our will until it corresponds to his. And I get a sense of Jesus going through this process himself as his center of gravity shifts, always willing to do the will of the Father. But in this second prayer, it does seem like there's no other way. Whew, okay. Then please help me move forward with faith. Help me commit with full courage. Help me keep my covenants. Help me help, me help you keep your word and do it your way. In verse 43, he then came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and so were their hearts. We'll see that clearly in one of the other accounts of this. But here, yet again, he left them. In fact, this time he didn't even wake them to ask why they couldn't watch with him one hour. He just let them sleep. He went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. And likely, with his center of gravity shifting even more toward the divine side. Finally, verse 45 and 46. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now. Take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And that word must have been hard for him to say. Since he had just finished suffering for the sinners of the world. What I just did for them, and now they're coming to betray me. Well, he accepted it, and fully resolved to continue forward. He then said to his sleepy apostles, Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. And thus ends the Gethsemane episode, the atonement episode, I should say, in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, pause before we go to Mark and think about what he's shown us. Three times, Jesus wrestling with his own weakness. And by that, I don't mean his own sinfulness, simply his own humanity, thanks to Mother Mary. Three times, though, he proves that he's 
strong enough to overcome the weakness of the flesh and fully live into the strength of the Spirit. Three times he does it the Father's way. And yet three times, we'll see a lot of threes today, three times the apostles unable to do the same. Three times that they are sleeping physically as well as spiritually when Jesus needed them to be awake. Now, pause for a second and think about 3rd Nephi. Because to me, 3rd Nephi, when Jesus comes, the recently risen Lord comes among the Nephites with so much of what we're studying this week and next week and the week after that still fresh on his mind. When you get to 3rd Nephi 18 and Jesus teaches prayer, so much of what he says to the Nephites is exactly what he experienced in Gethsemane and pled with his apostles for as a result. This is 3 Nephi 18, verse 15. Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye must watch and pray always, lest ye be tempted by the devil, and ye be led away captive by him. Sounds similar to what he was saying to the apostles in the garden? Or skip forward a few verses, and in chapter 18, verse 18, again he asks, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye must watch and pray always, lest ye enter into temptation. For Satan desireth to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Sound familiar, Simon Peter? Don't fall through the adversary's fingers. Lay hold to the hand of God. Watch, pray, endure temptation. Overcome it with your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because falling to temptation, I now know viscerally the price that has to be paid as a result. There's one other element in 3 Nephi that blows me away. It's in the following chapter, in chapter 19. Chapter 19 is like prayer throughout the entire, from start to finish. But it's broken up by Jesus going from his point of prayer back to the people's. Sound familiar? Just like Gethsemane goes a little further, not quite yonder, but as far as he could go and collapses on the ground and begins to pray, but then comes up for air and goes back to see his apostles who are sleeping. And then he goes back and prays some more. But in 3:19, there are also three rounds of this. Jesus prays, goes, he's with the people and they're praying with him. He then departs and prays for them. It's actually fascinating what he prays for. Early on, he prays that his people may be one. Sound like what we studied in the great intercessory prayer last week? That's still something the Savior is pleading for, for all of us. In the midst of that prayer, he gets up and goes back to the disciples. And what are they doing? They're still praying, pleading with the Father. And what does Jesus do? He looks upon them, he smiles upon them, shines upon them, goes back and continues to pray. This time he prays for them to be able to overcome the world and be pure. Wasn't that something he prayed for in in John 17 also, last week? He then gets up again and goes back to the people and sees them still praying with all their hearts. And then he goes back and prays for them yet again in words that cannot be uttered. In some ways, 3 Nephi 19 is what Gethsemane could have been. If the apostles could have tarried and watched with him. Can you imagine how it would have felt for Jesus 
to suffer and just to try to break it up into digestible chunks. To break up his agonies, to come up for air and go back to the apostles and see them tarrying, alert and attentive, watching with him, praying right alongside him. I can't suffer for you, but maybe I can feel alongside you. I have nothing to say, but I can be. I can be here. I can try to understand what you're going through. I can be vigilant. I can hold your hand. I can, I can pray. Imagine how strengthening that would have been for Jesus. To see people watching and praying lest they enter into temptation. And then go back and suffer for temptations unresisted. And trials suffered and mistakes made. And then come up again for air and go back and to see his apostles still. Are you, are you done? Is it over? Can we, can we get out of this garden? No. You still have more to go through. Then we're here for you. And we'll keep praying for you. I love 3 Nephi 19. On its own, it's absolutely breathtaking. But when you compare it to a similar broken up prayer, it becomes all the more glorious. And makes me wish that more apostles and more personally, more disciples could stay awake a little longer. And abide with Jesus and watch with him. Not just one hour, but any hour he asks of us. I want to be better for him. And so does Mark. Mark's account, most likely remembering things he'd learned from the Apostle Peter, records this in even fewer verses than Matthew gives us. Many of them are very similar to what we saw in Matthew's account, but there are a few differences that are really worth dwelling on. This is Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 32. They came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. He taketh with him Peter and James and John, and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. Now that's almost identical to what Matthew gives us. But did you catch the phrase that he began to be sore amazed? We didn't see that in Matthew. Now I want to come right back to what that might mean to us. But there is a Joseph Smith translation here that shifts the amazement from Christ to his apostles. But it does more than shift that. It also, it deepens what Jesus was up against, what he was going through. It's, it's a haunting JST. It's one of the most powerful in the New Testament. It says this, They came to a place which was named Gethsemane, which was a garden, and the disciples began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. So this is something that's on their minds. Remember Jesus had said at the Last Supper, I, I realize how troubled your hearts are. I'm trying to comfort you in this moment. But notice what they were troubled about. They were sore amazed. They were very heavy. And they began to complain in their hearts, wondering. 
if this be the Messiah. And Jesus, knowing their hearts, said to his disciples, Sit ye here, while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John, and rebuked them, and said unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch. Do you catch what, what we just saw in the JST? You want to talk about one last gut punch? Right as Jesus is about to do the hardest thing in all history? I don't think mortal analogies can do this justice. But to think of you're about to do the hardest thing ever and somebody that's supposed to be cheering you on leaves you with doubt right before you go up. This is... Oh, you're coming out of the timeout and you have to sink these free throws. And at the last, right before the, co- the timeout's over, the coach says something to take away all of your confidence. He doesn't believe in you at all. You're about to take the stage. And the director behind stage says to you, yeah, I, I doubt you're going to be able to pull this off. And you're supposed to go face the spotlight with the one person who's supposed to believe in you most and they don't? Can you imagine after three years of seeing success and failure in your mission and seeing multitudes come flocking and then yet disciples streaming away in the opposite direction? Because your sayings were too hard for them and they were offended. Well, will you also go away? You chosen 12? One already has. I know where, what Judas is up to. The rest, all saying they'll stay strong and yet knowing that they'll all soon be scattered. In this moment of deepest distress, of most exceeding, encompassing sorrow for Jesus, His own closest 11 are talking behind his back, whispering to one another, yeah, I don't know if this is really the Messiah after all. If he were, wouldn't he be doing something by now to throw off the Roman yoke? What are we doing here in the darkness? Why are we going to the garden? And here they are complaining in their hearts, wondering if it's really the Messiah. I can't imagine Jesus. I I think in some ways, no wonder Jesus rebukes Peter, James, and John. Like you, of all people, should know better. What more could I have done for my vineyard? And really, what more could I have done to convince my fellow laborers in it? How do you not know yet who I am? Why must I still have to pray for you that your faith fail not? How could you not yet be converted to the point where you can strengthen even these brethren who somehow still need a lot of strengthening. Wow, I'm haunted by this JSD. And it adds one more burden on the Savior's back. If these still don't get it, will anyone? What I'm about to do, will it make a difference? Not just when I return will I find faith on the earth. Will I find any faith before I leave? Because I'm not seeing it here. And yes, he rebukes his chief apostles. 
for their weakness. Now, all of that comes with the help of the JST. But without it, what are we left with in the King James? It's Jesus being sore amazed. Now, maybe that's impossible, and thus the JST shifts it, and, and Jesus can't be amazed. But mere mortals can be. I mean, how do you astonish omniscience, right? He knows everything. Well, yes and no. To borrow Elder Maxwell's language, he knows everything cognitively, but he doesn't know everything experientially. At least not yet. He's about to. That's what Gethsemane is all about. But with that in mind, I wonder if it's still possible to hold on to that King James language and ponder Jesus himself being sore amazed. Utter disbelief, just shock and awe of how much worse the sins of the world are than what even he in his omniscience could have imagined. You do, whether or not you see that in, in Mark 14, you do see it in Alma 7. You do sense at least some level of amazement on the Savior's part, as hinted by Alma in Alma chapter 7, starting verse 11 and 12. He shall go forth, this is Alma prophesying of Jesus' mortal ministry, he shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind. And this that the word might be fulfilled, which saith he will take upon him the pains and the sicknesses of his people. That's what every prophet has been prophesying of. Well, now Jesus is actually fulfilling the prophecy. It's happening as we speak. Alma goes on, he will take upon him death. We'll see that next week on Calvary that he may loose the bands of death which bind his people. And he will take upon him their infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. And that's what's happening in Gethsemane. I have to know, and I have to know according to the flesh. There's a different kind of knowledge when it's down deep in the bones rather than some intellectual, academic, distanced approach. I know about childbirth, but only cognitively. I know nothing about it experientially. My wife and I both took the preparation courses. We both read what to expect when you're expecting. We both knew, quote unquote. But then my wife gained experiential knowledge. She learned according to the flesh and it amazed her at how much worse experience is than just expectation. I get a sense of that in the next verse from Alma 7. Verse 13, Now the Spirit knoweth all things. So yeah, nothing could amaze Jesus. Cognitively, he's omniscient. He gets it all. Nevertheless, Alma says, the Son of God suffereth according to the flesh, that he might take upon him the sins of his people, that he might blot out their transgressions according to the power of his deliverance. And now behold, this is the testimony which is in me. And what a testimony Alma is bearing. You get a sense of that difference, the cognitive versus experiential? Knowing it in the mind versus feeling it in the flesh? I do believe that Jesus was sore amazed. 
in even more personal and profound ways than his apostles ever could have been. Shock and awe of fully embracing the human experience. There's so much about the atonement we are not told here in the Gethsemane accounts. In some ways, it's going to be left to theologians like Paul. We will wrestle with the, the effect of the atonement in so many of Paul's letters because he's trying to make sense of it theologically. And what did that do? That's what Alma is trying to do here, make sense of the atonement theologically. And what is it doing for people? How does he wash away sin? How does he overcome death? How does he come to fully understand in a way that perfect empathy will then inform his every action? We'll see more of that theological aspect next week as the crucifixion comes to a close. And what Jesus meant by it is finished. Hmm, what was finished? Hold out for that one. Jesus himself has an answer, but we had to wait 1,800 years to get it. What are we seeing here? Christ going through something that we can't fully understand, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't, don't completely get. And yes, we'll theologize later. But here, just to pause and ponder, what does Jesus know about me and what I've been through? or what I'm going through. And part of his condescension, his descending to be with us, is to take away from us any chance to ever shake our fist heavenward and accuse him of not knowing what we're going through. If that was somewhere in the back of Joseph Smith's mind when he was languishing in Liberty Jail, no, the Lord laid that to rest. The Son of Man hath descended below all things. Art thou greater than he? No. I know. I know in ways I couldn't have known before exactly what you're going through. There's something to be said for him tarrying with us in our gardens and watching with us with a vigilance that's been unmatched in human history. Incredible what Jesus is going through here. Now back to Mark chapter 14. In verse 35 to 36, we see his description of this back and forth praying and, and coming up for air, gasping for it, I'm sure, just get before the next wave crashes and brings him back beneath the surface of our sufferings. In verse 35, he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Notice, not the, just the cup. He'll mention that in a moment, but the hour. Can we speed this up? Is there some way to just get past it? Can we, can we skip ahead to the, to the finish line and not have to go through all the agony on the way? Is that even possible? He's praying that, that it might be. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. And then most likely another powerful pause. Wrestling with his mortal side. And then offering it on the altar with the phrase, nevertheless. 
not what I will, but what thou wilt. Now that's almost identical to Matthew's version as well, but did you catch the addition of that one word, Abba? In Matthew, it was, oh, my father. And here it's father as well, but Abba, father. Abba means father, but it's more tender. It's more affectionate. It's more humble and and lowly. It's more childlike. Because Abba means more than father. It means Papa. It means Daddy. We see Jesus in his dual nature of the infinite and the intimate, the divine and the human, the Father and the Son. Well, the Father himself is infinite and intimate as well. The Father, it's interesting because next week when we see the cross, Jesus has a different word, a different title for Father, and it is Eli, which means my God. And the Father is both of those to him. He is both Abba and Eli. He is both my dad and my God. And it seems that when Jesus is more the Father side himself, more of the divine, it would be easier to call upon God as my God, Eli. And yet when he is feeling like the son side himself, to cry out desperately for his daddy, Abba, Father, please, is there no other way? I'm begging you as your only begotten son. As your little boy, I'm a father, and sometimes I feel like it and act like it, but there are other times I'm, I know I'm still a son, and I feel that son side keenly. Jesus was here. But he submits. He neverthelesses. We see it again in verse 37 and 38. He cometh and findeth them sleeping and saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldst not thou watch one hour? Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. Again, so much like Matthew's version, but in Mark's, we get the specific statement. He calls him Simon. Interesting how he phrased it. He said unto Peter, but Jesus didn't call him Peter. This is Mark calling him Peter. But Jesus called him Simon. As if to imply some rock you turned out to be. Simon, when I needed you to be strong, when, you, when I needed to lean on your rock-like strength, I found you sleeping. Please watch. Please pray. Please do not enter into temptation. And it's interesting because in the Matthew version, and here in Mark, when it's Jesus saying the spirit is ready or willing, but the flesh is weak, there's a JST of the Mark version that puts those words in the apostle's mouth instead of Christ's. In Matthew's version, it seems like they're speechless the whole time. Well, what could you possibly say? to explain yourself, to defend yourself. Just kind of a uh, 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 stammering. In Mark's, they're the ones that respond sheepishly, I'm sure. I am so sorry. 
I wish I could be stronger for you. The Spirit really is willing. It's, I want to be more than I am. But my flesh is so weak. Now more than ever, Jesus gets that. He's always known it, but now he knows it according to the flesh. And so he leaves them in their fallen flesh. He leaves them in their worldly weakness and goes back into the shadows to continue paying the price. In verse 39 and 40, again he went away and prayed and spake the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again. But then Mark explains a little bit. For their eyes were heavy, neither wist they what to answer him. And that's closer to the Matthew version of just not having anything to say. What could you possibly say? And yet, what had Jesus asked of them? Give me a pump-up speech? No, just watch. I know you can't fully be with me, but can you just try to abide? Can you try to stay plugged in to my pains? It's interesting what empathy offers. It's, it doesn't have to be words of encouragement. Jesus is not yet at the place where he's, he can be comforted because he stands in need of comfort. No, he's mourning and he just wants someone to mourn with him. Remember the order there of our, of our baptismal covenants. To mourn with those that mourn and only later to comfort those that stand in need of comfort. You don't have to say a word. I know there's nothing you can say. Just be with me. Suffer in silence at my side. We don't have to know what to answer him. Because there's nothing to, to answer at all. Well, by then, verse 41, he cometh the third time. And saith unto them, sleep on now and take your rest. It is enough. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. And there's Judas, ready and waiting. Now, before we shift to the Luke version of this, though, one last detail. There's a JST of that last passage for Mark, where it says, after they had finished their sleep, that's when Jesus said, rise up. Here comes the betrayer. Interesting, he would let them finish even though it was he who had spent the sleepless night. He'd come back and awakened them several times. But this third, knowing now that his, that, that chapter in the atonement had come to its close, it was now ready to, he was ready to turn the page and move toward Calvary and the crucifixion. Well, I might as well let them sleep now. To me, there's just something tender, something truly empathetic, empathizing for them, though they were unable to fully empathize with him. I understand mortal weakness. I understand human frailty in ways I never have before. Get some more sleep. You're going to need it. Even though he's the one that needs it most of all. I, I just, I wonder what Jesus is doing. How long did it take? Has he just sat basically alone, though surrounded by disciples, waiting them to catch their beauty sleep. 
perhaps trying to recover a little of his strength, knowing he still had a long night ahead. With that, turn to Luke. And in chapter 22, verse 39, we see him begin his account of Gethsemane. The way he phrases it at the beginning is beautiful to me. It says, He came out and went, as he was wont, to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples also followed him. As he was wont, that's not W-A-N-T. It's not like I want to go there right now. No, I'd rather avoid it at all costs. But want, W-O-N-T, speaks more of custom and what you're used to and what you typically do. And yes, Jesus typically marched into the lion's den, no matter what. He typically went to places that most normal people wouldn't want to go. He touched lepers. He went and hung out with publicans and sinners. He marched straight through Samaria. Well, here, he set his face steadfastly to go into the garden as he was wont. I wonder sometimes, how many times had Jesus already been to Gethsemane? Did he know from the start what would happen there? And did he go frequently beforehand to get, just get his bearings? I want it to at least feel familiar to me when all of the unfamiliar begins to sink into the soul. Is Gethsemane a place we are wont to go? Do we frequently come there to repent of our sins and to see the Savior's love made manifest? I hope so. Verse 40 then, And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. We are used to this language now after studying Matthew and Mark. In Luke, we'll leave those specific words alone. But did you catch the phrase about how far he went? Is this distant from the 11? And he takes Peter, James, and John, that stone's cast away? Or is that how far he was able to stumble before he finally fell on his face? after having left James, John, and Peter behind him. I don't know. But interesting way to describe it. We didn't talk about feet or microns. We didn't talk about furlongs or cubits. It was a stone's cast. Which means, I guess, if you throw it hard enough, from this distance you could still strike the Savior with a stone. Oh, if you're perfect, that is. I just get memories, deja vu, of the woman taken in adultery. And, oh yeah, she was well within a stone's throw, surrounded by people with rocks in their hands, ready to strike. And yet, from Jesus, who was the only one qualified to throw a stone, no, he didn't throw it anywhere. Not at her, not at his, her accusers. No. I, I just, I think there's something worth pondering about that phrase. And if Christ is a stone's throw away from me, he's not throwing stones in my direction. 
I certainly won't throw any at his. I want to be closer. I want to abide in him. I want to watch. And if I do, what will I see? I will see details in Luke's version that I won't see in anyone else's. Luke, as you recall, was a physician. And if there were ever a time where your medical training would prompt some some ponderings on your part, it would cause some questions to develop. And how, what happened here? And with, with his physician's eye, notice what he describes in verse 43 and 44. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, it's that second half that is probably going to leave him wondering as a, as a doctor. But even the first half, some kind of suffering so intense that God sent an angel to strengthen him. Matthew doesn't include that detail. Mark doesn't mention it. John doesn't say anything about it either. But Luke somehow knew this powerful detail. It's interesting to think about what Jesus is going through. When it says that the angel strengthened him, the Greek word there suggests an engaging, assaulting strength, which was interesting as I was looking up these words in, in lexicons. The, the, the idea there, the assaulting strength, is the type that will charge into the battle, runs into the, the fray rather than away from it. And that's the kind of strength Jesus has, but will need even more of. That's the kind of strength the angel provides. To me, there's something powerful about this, about this scene. That begs the other question, who might this angel have been? Elder McConkie suggests, and that's all it is, a suggestion. The text does not tell us. But Elder McConkie suggests it may have been Michael. And who better than the mighty archangel to come and strengthen the Savior? Who better than he who will lead the charge? Talk about assaulting strength. My, my, Michael, the mighty archangel, taking on the adversary. Well, here he's watching Jesus do it first and do it single-handedly. Oh, yes, he's there to strengthen, but is he also there to learn? From the greatest example of assaulting strength in history? Oh, interesting what Michael may be learning here, if it's him. The other element is, who, who is Michael? Yes, the mighty archangel, but in mortality, he was Father Adam. And again, that seems so beautifully fitting as one to be sent to strengthen the Savior. Paul will teach this to the Corinthians, that as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. It's, it's, it's as if Adam is saying to Jesus, you helped me through my garden. Please let me help you through yours. You were there as I brought death into the world, a necessary thing. But here you are suffering for all my posterity in order to bring life into the world for all of them, all of us. Oh, it does seem beautifully fitting that Adam would be there. 
next week when we see Mother Mary at the cross, I wonder if we can imagine Eve somewhere nearby. But to understand all of humanity, the entire human race in some ways, personified by this strengthening angel, where else would we have been? If heavenly hosts sang at the birth of Jesus, what would the heavenly hosts have been doing in this moment that had all eternity squeezed into seconds? How oh, distilled into hours. Were we hoping, pleading? Again, that's part of the arithmetic of the atonement as well. If the weight of the world's sins and sorrows and sufferings were pushing him down, no wonder there was an angel there to bear him up. Can you imagine Satan and all his hosts fighting against the Savior, and therefore all the hosts of heaven cheering him on? That was verse 43. And then what we saw in verse 44, being in an agony, praying more earnestly, sweat like great drops of blood. Like I said, that, that would pick up a physician's ear. And how is that possible? What, what does he mean by agony? It's interesting because that's the only time in the Greek New Testament, where that word is used. We've seen all kinds of suffering before. We'll see more of it later in the life of Paul and others. But a, su a suffering, an agony that is unique to Jesus, something that only the Son of God himself can endure and survive. I get that sense there. There's actually another element that the Greek suggests. And this was eye-opening to me as well. That the word there for agony, agonia, also suggests the kind of suffering that includes great fear. We saw that earlier in the Matthew version when it talked about his exceeding sorrow. His being surrounded by that kind of, of agonizing sorrow of what am I in for? And a woman in labor or expectation of that kind of intense pain and how's that going to be? In this Greek term... Some have used it to suggest the kind of fear an athlete feels before going into the arena. Picture the, the gladiators ready to take each other on. Picture, since it's a Greek word, picture the Greek Olympics. And you are taking on the greatest athletes in the entire known world. And if you've ever felt that pressure in the locker room, if you've ever felt that kind of Fear and wondering if you'll be able to, to win. There's something to this language and what Jesus is going through. Again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they can't, they can't touch what Jesus is really going through. Dim witnesses are we all. But to try to wrap our, around language, to try to come up with some kind of mortal vocabulary that can get close. And if any of these emotional insights can give you a sense of what Jesus is feeling here. Then sit with those, abide in them, watch with him, and allow what you see to change you. That earnest prayer to overcome that agonizing feeling, that's another word that only appears 
once in the New Testament. Praying more earnestly. Lots of people do earnest things, but for some reason, Luke had to find a word that was untouched by anyone else. The kind of suffering Jesus endured was unique to him. And the kind of prayer that he uttered was something only the Savior could say. His, the intensity of that prayer, the earnestness was unique to him. And then that other detail, the great drops of blood. The Greek word for that is thrombos, as in deep vein thrombosis. My wife just went through three of them simultaneously. We're still trying to figure out where, why they form. She has a blood condition that makes her more susceptible to blood clots. We didn't find that out until baby number five was on the way. And the doctor realized that she had it. She'd, her brother had had a blood clot. She, he got tested, found that he had this genetic blood disorder. Doctor said to him, tell all your siblings to go get tested. And sure enough, my wife had it. She went to the doctor. This was our only baby not born in Utah. So we had a new OBGYN in Nashville. And when the OBGYN found out, oh, you have this blood condition, that's one strike against you. Being pregnant will be a second strike. So this is a high-risk pregnancy. It's your first one, right? And my wife was like, no, I've had four children. And the doctor was shocked. He's like, that's impossible in your condition. Well, how many miscarriages did you have along the way? And my wife said, none. And the doctor said, again, impossible. You've had four miracle babies and assuming all goes well here, you'll have a fifth miracle come your way. But that miracle required, I had to give my wife a shot in the abdomen every day of that pregnancy. I called her my sweet little pincushion affectionately. Uh, it, was, it was a tough pregnancy for her. I only knew it cognitively. She knew it experientially. But because of this blood condition, she's always been susceptible to these Recently, this past month, she had three DVTs and deep vein thrombosis. That's the word being used here. That these drops of blood were emerging from every pore. What scared my wife and I so much, to the point of canceling all kinds of other plans and just trying to figure out go to all kinds of doctors and hematologists and MRIs and ultrasounds and just trying to make sense of what is going on in your body. And you've always had this condition, but why now are these appearing? And if these DVTs dislodge and head to your heart or your lungs or your brain, that could be it. A lot of praying this last month or two as we've tried to get through it. And to think of Jesus in this point where all of his agonizing by tomorrow it will prove fatal. All of the blood loss, all that he's enduring as the olive press is crushing him to the ground. To me, I'm, I'm I'll, I'll put it this way. I, one of you actually reached out and begged me, please don't be too graphic when you describe Gethsemane and Calvary. And I want to honor that request. 
uh, there's it goes beyond depiction. And usually when it is depicted, it's so softened. When the church makes videos of the death of Christ, they typically allow your imagination to fill in some blanks. And they don't show certain parts that would be too graphic for us to be able to, to handle. Most times in the Garden of Gethsemane, it shows Jesus kneeling and praying, but it does not show him bleeding great drops of blood. It shows him getting up and leaving the garden in robes that looked probably a lot like they did when he first left the upper room. But if we're being strict with what we see in Scripture, no, he would have left the garden with robes of reminding red. To borrow Elder Maxwell's phrase to describe the second coming. That cloth would have been soaked in his own blood. And these great drops dropping to the ground. It's intense for a doctor to see and try to make sense of survival after that amount of blood loss and then going to be scourged, and then going to be crucified, and all that we'll see next week with this as background. Now, some have pushed back and said, wait, 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 no, if you want to stick to the text, fine, then stick to the text. And did you catch what he said? His sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. It was such an intensity of, of experience that he was sweating profusely, and the, blood, and the sweat drops were as big as a, a drop of blood. That's, that's all it is. In fact, some people so diminish Gethsemane. I, I fear, and we'll talk about this next week, I fear we do the opposite. We diminish Calvary in order to emphasize Gethsemane. The, I, that's just an overcorrection of what so many other Christians do in underemphasizing Gethsemane in order to emphasize Calvary. No, they're both equally important. They're both under the broad umbrella of the atonement of Jesus Christ. But those who say that ah, not, not much happened in Gethsemane. It was more Jesus. In fact, a lot of them will limit it to John and say, well, he prayed on the way. And the only thing that really happened in Gethsemane was the betrayal by Judas. Uh, but he was dealing with these thoughts about what would happen the next day. And so he was really praying for oneness. That's John 17. Here he's just pleading with the Lord, tomorrow's going to be hard. So if possible, can we do something different before that day comes? They don't fully understand what Jesus is going through and what he's accomplishing in the garden. And so for them, yeah, he's just, he's kind of sweating it out as far as this concern for the, for the morrow and not realizing that, no, there is atoning blood being shed here. Here is where he is trotting the wine press alone and staining all his raiment. We saw that in the Doctrine and Covenants two years ago. We'll see that in the book of Revelation at the end of this year's study. It's happening in Gethsemane. There's something profound, something eternal, something theological and physical that's taking place here. And it's blood, not just sweat, that's coming from every pore. We get that clearly in both the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants. 
So to anyone that simply says, no, it was just sweat that looked like blood. No, read this from Mosiah chapter 3. King Benjamin teaches in verse 7, And lo, he shall suffer temptations and pain of body, hunger, thirst, and fatigue, even more than man can suffer, except to be unto death. For behold, blood cometh from every poor, so great shall be his anguish for the wickedness and the abominations of his people. Again, that's the, the oil being pressed out of the olives. This is the blood being pushed from every pore. And King Benjamin understands its significance. By the way, he also understands in the, con in, in the contest between divinity and humanity, where divinity has to win, we too often think divinity made it easy. At least I was guilty of that when I was young. Thinking that the Savior, well, I mean, he could walk upon the water, so he could kind of float above our mortal frailty, right? And so, yes, he suffered for our sins, but it didn't hurt him the way it would hurt us. I mean, we've all been raised on enough superhero movies that, eh, that it doesn't hurt quite as much when you're, when you're practically divine. Well, I'm grateful for King Benjamin disabusing us of that misunderstanding. Because the way he describes it, the intensity of his suffering to the point of bleeding from every pore, he suffered more than man can suffer, except it be unto death. Do you catch the difference? If it was all humanity, yes, he would suffer, but he would suffer less than someone infused also with divinity. Because what does mere humanity do in the face of intense agony? It shuts down. It pulls the plug. It hits the eject button. And it falls unconscious. So I don't have to feel. It may die. So I don't have to keep enduring. And if Jesus were only son of Mary, he wouldn't have survived Gethsemane. No, according to King Benjamin... He held on through his divine side to keep the mortal side going. That idea of spirit willing, flesh is weak. If it was only flesh, it would have been too weak to suffer for all humanity. And so through his divinity, he forced his humanity to carry on, to stay awake, to abide with each of us. Can you picture the, the human side of Jesus begging, I'm done. Can, can, is it over? Is it finished? And the divine side saying, not yet. You haven't yet suffered for so and so. And this person is still waiting in line. And the infinite has not yet reached the intimate with every single individual. So don't die yet. Uh, refuse succumbing to unconsciousness. Suffer more than man can suffer beyond death and stay alive in the face of death. Your death will come tomorrow. It can't come tonight. And so Jesus endured. But he bled from every pore as a result. That's the Book of Mormon's clarification. The Doctrine and Covenances is just as powerful, if not more so. This is section 19, verses 15 through 18. And it's the first time in 1800 years that Jesus himself describes what he felt in the garden. 
He says, therefore, I command you to repent. Repent, lest I smite you by the rod of my mouth and by my wrath and by my anger and your sufferings be sore. And then he describes what those sufferings would be. The kind of suffering he endured. The kind of suffering he's trying to save us from if we'll simply repent of our sins so that we don't have to suffer them. He says, how sore you know not, how exquisite you know not, yea, how hard to bear you know not. And here the Lord is begging, I don't want you to ever know it. I know it. I know it intimately. I know it infinitely. I know it personally. I know it physically. I know it experientially because of what I went through in Gethsemane. And it was sore. It was exquisite. It was hard to bear. He says, if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I. Which suffering caused myself, even God, a God side that pushed past the human limits of all of this. It caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain and to bleed at every pore. That's where we get the clarification that we need from the book of Luke. He then adds, and to suffer both body and spirit, and would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. And he didn't shrink. It was always nevertheless. It was always thy will be done. It was always divinity holding out far beyond the place where humanity would have thrown in the towel. No, Jesus never threw in the towel. He wore it. And with it, he washed our filthy feet. He transferred our sins and stains and sufferings and sorrows onto himself. And with our blood, he stained all his garment so that with his blood, he could purify ours. The theology here is profound. The physical here is haunting, as Dr. Luke is making clear. No wonder an angel was needed. No wonder incomparable strength was required. Because an agony and an intensity of prayer were coming together in this moment within the Messiah. Luke then ends his version, his account of this, by saying in verse 45 and 46, when he rose up from prayer, and again, how long would that have taken? What would he have looked like? How much strength would he have had remaining? Somehow he rose up and was come to his disciples where he found them sleeping for sorrow. The JST clarifies that. He found them sleeping, for they were filled with sorrow. But I just love the way the King James just shortens that. Sleeping for sorrow helps explain why they just couldn't keep their eyes open. Why they had nothing to say. Why they felt there was nothing they could do. And gentle Jesus says to them, Why sleep ye? Oh, rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. More than ever, he knows the price to be paid when we don't resist temptation. But also, more than ever, he knows heavy eyes and heavy hearts 
and why we sometimes sleep for sorrow. One of the interesting oh, symptoms of clinical depression is not being able to get out of bed. It's not physical fatigue, though it might feel like that. It's this emotional lethargy. It's this inability to pick yourself up and move forward. And these apostles are feeling that too. They are sleeping for sorrow. Well, Jesus felt all that sorrow and never slept. If you can't get out of bed, please know that Jesus was able to get out of his. So to come to your bedside, to abide with you, to tarry alongside you, and to watch with you, even when there's nothing to say. That's a powerful thing to recognize from Jesus also. After which we only have John left to turn to. And yet, John, here you'd expect something, right? Because out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where are they getting their information? I mean, Luke, again, with a physician's eye, but he wasn't present. So it must have been lots of incredible interviews and probing potential witnesses for any detail that he could, he could get out of them. Mark would have been the same. At least he had Peter to talk to, right? If, if he's getting his account from Peter, and Peter's would have been a first-hand account. Peter would have been right there, as close as possible. That, he went with him that stone's throw, most likely, just micrometers away to see. But again, from Peter, it would have been passed to Mark, so it was still a second-hand account. Matthew was there firsthand. He's an apostle, eyewitness, but he is a stone's throw away. He didn't go all the way into the garden like Peter, James, and John did. Ooh, Peter, James, and John, but John did. So Matthew, first-hand account, but from a distance. Mark, close, but a second-hand account from him who was close. Luke, second-hand all the way, but with a good interview and a good eye. So John, John's our guy. John should give us the best account because his is a first-hand account. He's writing, and he was closest to the action, one of those final three. I mean, yes, he was sleeping for sorrow. Yes, he was found with eyes closed and eyes heavy, just like James and, G and, and Peter were. But if anyone would have eyes to see, and therefore words to speak, it would be John, right? Well, turn to John chapter 18 and look at verse 1 and 2. And this is his full account of Jesus entering Gethsemane. Remember, he spent chapter 13 and 14 still in the upper room, 15, 16, 17, on the way to the garden. All the incredible detail of this, the sermon after supper and the lesson along the way, visual aids of true vines growing all around them. They finally arrive at the garden, and now I'm ready for another four or five chapters worth of firsthand account. What do I get instead? Only this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Cedron. We would call that the brook Kidron if we were looking at the Old Testament, but here's the Greek spelling of it. 
He crossed over the brook, said Ron, where was a garden. He doesn't even name it. We get Gethsemane from the other accounts. But here this garden into the which he entered and his disciples. Now it's here after verse 1 is done that we would expect to see Jesus on his knees or more accurately falling on his face. It's here we would expect the threefold prayers and petitions of any other way. We'd see here returning to sleeping apostles and, and Jesus coming up for air, but then going back down beneath the depths alone. What would we see from John? All of this right after that period. But instead, what do we get in verse 2? And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. And by verse 3, the betrayal is underway leaving me with such a question for John. You were supposed to be our best source. You were supposed to be able to give us the most about what Jesus endured in Gethsemane. And instead, you gave us the least. Not only least, you gave us nothing. He entered the garden, and the very next verse, Judas enters too. We don't see anything that Jesus did. This is why some scholars and students are left wondering if Gethsemane really had any theological meaning. Or if what we already saw in John and this intercessory prayer, was that the prayer in Gethsemane? They got interrupted three times? Were they sleeping through that one? How do we merge the Synoptic Gospels with the Gospel of John? Well, in some ways, if we're going in order through the four, Matthew, do you remember anything? And he gives us the best he can. Mark, what do you remember from Peter? Any details? And he gives us a few. Luke, you were a careful interviewer. What details did you find? And he gives us some glorious ones. And now, great anticipation, John, how about you? Closest to the action. Best eyewitness. And John stands there speechless. With no more words than what he had in the garden. I had, I had nothing to say to Jesus. And I have nothing to say to you about what Jesus did. I wonder, this goes back to that beautiful Farrar quote. It's as if this moment in John's mind were shrouded in sacred silence and it's too holy for me to even enter on bare feet. Or maybe it's more personal for him. I can't talk about it. The one time Jesus needed me, the disciple that Jesus loved, and I, I wasn't there for him. I couldn't watch one hour. I couldn't abide with him who, who just begged that we stay and tarry. Can we not talk about this, please? I'm amazed by the, what J Jacob says in the Book of Mormon. A beautiful rhetorical question when he says, why not speak of the atonement of Christ? 
And yeah, it's rhetorical. It's meant to be, well, of, of course we should all speak of the atonement of Christ. And yes, we all should. But in the face of that rhetorical question, John the Beloved makes it a literal question and literally answers it as if to say to Jacob, why not speak of the atonement? I've got a few reasons. And I just can't go there. Can we just can we talk about the Last Supper instead, please? Out of my 21 chapters, I'll give five just on that subject. Can I talk about my favorite memory? The last moments I spent alongside the Savior, leaning behind me into his bosom at the Last Supper, having my feet washed by him who was about to wash us all clean. Can we talk about oneness and purity and overcoming the world? Can we talk about love made manifest in the gift of Jesus? Beyond that, I don't want to say a word about what happened in the shadows of the garden. I suppose we need to honor that and allow this sacred silence to prevail in the Gospel of John. Though I do wonder also if he's dropping a hint, some subtle symbolism just by mentioning how he got there. Doesn't even say the name of the garden, but does name the brook. The, the Kidron River, flowing through the Kidron Valley. Because if he hopes that we remember our Old Testament, then what do we know about that river? That gentle stream? After this night, you could rename it the Savior's stream. It will be his blood that is mingled with those waters. In the Old Testament, the brook Kidron was the one that David crossed during Absalom's rebellion. It's where kings go when people that they love end up betraying them. The Kidron Valley and the Kidron River was where King Hezekiah and King Josiah both brought all of the pagan altars and false gods and images to grind them down, to burn them, to destroy them, to cast, cast them into the water, to have that river, Kidron, sweep them away into the Dead Sea. Which means this place is where kings go to purify their kingdoms. On the Day of Atonement, the Kidron River was the boundary where you would bring the scapegoat across and then let it loose into the wilderness of sin. Ah, one goat to be sacrificed for sin and the other goat, goat being have all sin placed upon it and sent out of the house of Israel. Jesus was both goats. A sinless sacrifice, but also the scapegoat for all of our sin. And where was he sent? Across the brook Kidron. To go face a wilderness of sin. Even if you take Ezekiel's vision and the 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 river that flows out of the foundation, from underneath the foundation of the temple, 
and flows east down to the Dead Sea to heal its waters and turn dead into life, giving life along its banks as far as the eye can see. Well, what river would that, what, what gorge would it follow? What riverbed would that miraculous river follow? Immediately upon leaving the Temple Mount, if it's going east, it would join into the Kidron River and eventually find its way to the Dead Sea. Even during days like Passover, and it's happening as we speak, so many lambs without blemish being sacrificed to commemorate the freedom given to slaves to be delivered and come to their promised land, death of firstborn and death of lambs, Jesus would be both, with so many lambs being slain at the Temple Mount. Imagine all of that lamb's blood flowing off the temple into its nearest riverbed, which is the Kidron, and eventually being emptied out into the Dead Sea. This river, this brook tonight, is already being mingled with the blood of the Lamb. And yes, it is meant to give life to everyone. I wonder if John had all of that in mind just by dropping that subtle hint of where Jesus happened to be. One last reminder. It's also called the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the Kidron Valley. Jehoshaphat had an incredible battle. Jehoshaphat, the name himself, means Jehovah will judge. It's that valley, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, that Joel renames in his small book. He calls it the Valley of Decision and says, Multitudes, multitudes in the Valley of Decision. The day of the Lord is near in the Valley of Decision. In that valley where Jehovah is judging in that valley where each of us are making life's decisions, if we made every choice in the Garden of Gethsemane, if we made every decision in that valley, seeing a brook wash away the Savior's blood, would we choose differently? I believe we would. I testify of what Jesus did in the Garden. I thank him for overcoming his astonishment and being willing to agonize with me over my sins. I pray that my decisions can be made in that valley because they'll be different if I do them with an eye to Jesus, if I tarry with him and watch with him every hour I need to so that in the hour of my most important choices, I choose him. It's in the immediate aftermath of all we've seen in Gethsemane that the ultimate choices are about to be made. A choice on the part of Judas and a choice on the part of Peter. And so what we see in this second half of this week's lesson is meant for us to grapple with our lesser selves because what we hate about Judas is the fact that we recognize ourselves in him. And what we can't stand about a weak moment in Peter's life is that we have so many weak moments ourselves. As we now turn to the betrayal and the denials, can we think less about 
Judas and Peter and more about ourselves? Can we approach this with a Lord, is it I mentality so that we can actually learn something? And rather than sit back as armchair quarterbacks from the safety of 2,000 years distance, we wonder what would we have done if we'd been there in the garden in the darkness or if we were there outside Caiaphas' palace, how would I have responded to the pressures all around me? Because I do succumb to sin. I don't always resist temptation when the Lord has begged me to watch and pray lest I enter into it. That is betrayal on my part. Remember we talked about this at the Last Supper? It wasn't just Judas that ate bread with Jesus and then lifted up the heel against him. We all partake of bread with him at the sacrament. We all turn against him and walk away from him. How's that turning the heel on him? Or as Nephi said, not abiding his counsels, that is treading him underfoot, trampling him beneath our heels. Yes, we're the Judas here. We're the Peter denying our knowledge of Jesus. There's all kinds of reasons we come up with. We'll, perhaps, we'll wrestle with some of Peter's possible ones too. But turn with me now to the next verse in John. Since John gave us no time in Gethsemane before Judas came barreling in to betray. This is John chapter 18, verse 3. You remember 1 and 2? Jesus comes to the garden. And Judas knew he'd be there because Jesus came there often. That ties in with what we saw in Luke. Luke told us that the Garden of Gethsemane was a place that Jesus was wont to come. He came there often. What John gives us in John chapter 18, verse 2, Jesus oft times resorted thither. And we should too. If we can oft times come unto Christ in that place, our valley of decision, if we can oft times repent of our sins, and offer them to him where he will wash them away down the brook Kidron. We need to come here often. Well, unfortunately, Judas knew how often Jesus would come and felt that's probably where he'll be tonight. That's where I'll be with my army. And so they assemble. John chapter 18, verse 3. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Matthew and Mark say that Judas came right as Jesus was finishing the words to the other eleven. So there's no, no, no passage of time as we shift from one scene to the next. This is full drama, barreling ahead. Matthew and Mark also say, more specifically, that Judas brought a great multitude with swords and staves. So when John just says, a band of men and officers, Matthew and Mark say it was huge. It was a multitude. And when John says, lanterns and torches, okay, they're going to have to have some, some light, which is such an irony because they're there to capture the light of the world. Oh yeah, but they're bringing darkness with them. So no wonder they're going to need some light to identify light by. Well, we see torches and lanterns with John's help, but with Matthew and Mark, we see the specific weapons that John didn't list. They call them swords and staves. And a stave, like a staff, picture a club, what, think about this. Judas has brought an army with him, a great multitude, well armed. They got the torches and lanterns to be able to see what they're doing. They got swords and clubs to be able to frighten off the apostles and be able to take Jesus captive. Dead or alive? Well, I guess they want him alive, but they're prepared for the worst, it seems. 
well-armed. What's interesting to me is this gives us a glimpse into what Judas is expecting. Because to bring, I mean, we know how the story ends, right? No spoiler alerts needed. Jesus will, be, will go like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. If Judas had paid attention in Sunday school or Sabbath school, <laughs> synagogue, he would have known that verse from Isaiah 53 and not needed, he would have known, I don't need an army. Because was the army necessary? Not at all. Jesus surrenders himself and is led without, without raising a finger in his own defense. Judas, you totally misjudge the situation. What do they say? Don't bring a, a knife to a gunfight? Well, he brought no guns, haven't been invented yet, but he brought swords and staves and an army. He must have been expecting as close to a gunfight as imaginable in the first century. But what did he get instead? No fight at all. I mean, we'll, we, you know this part too. There was a bit of a fight for an instant, but Jesus quickly, quickly calmed that one. He says, no, 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 lamb to the slaughter. But if what Judas got was the lamb. What he'd been expecting, it seems, was the lion. Picture this, for example. Picture Judas so afraid of what Jesus was going to do. Here's a guy that can walk on water. Here's a guy that can command the elements. Peace be still in the middle of a storm. And I'm sure he could do the reverse and cause a storm that would blow us all away. Here's someone who can raise the dead. Well, can we even use death as a deterrent? I don't know. So it's all hands on deck. It's, get, it's rally the troops. It's get an army and arm them well. Because this is going to be a fight to the finish. Now, some have suggested, wait a minute, it, it, was Judas expecting that? Or was he hoping for that? I mean, did he know Peter well enough that, yeah, if anybody's going to jump into the fray, it's probably going to be him. Uh, and if we can start a fight, maybe that can ignite a messianic revolution. It, it does make you wonder, was Judas Iscariot a little like those multitudes, the 5,000 who had, been, had the loaves and fishes multiplied for them? And then came back and got the bread of, less, bread of life discourse instead of more bread. When Jesus told them, I'm not that kind of Messiah. I'm not here to free you from Rome. I'm here to save you from sin. And they all went away. And Jesus turns to the twelve. Will you also? Was Judas like on the fence? Like, mm, maybe. But if we could just jumpstart an insurrection. I mean, it is Passover. You've got Jews from all over the diaspora here in town Remember, you've got scribes and Pharisees and chief priests and, and people in charge of the Temple Mount scared to death of a riot because this is when the Roman legions are on high alert, thinking if anything's going to go down, it's going to go down during the Passover season. And so if I can just ignite a spark, if I could light a match and throw it into the, the tinderbox, then the explosion will drive out Rome once and for all. I, I want Jesus to be that kind of Messiah. 
And he seems so hesitant for some reason. He seems so, so gentle instead. Maybe he's biding his time. Now there's no more time to wait. We'll be, we'll be, will we be around for another Passover? This is our third one. We got to go. He keeps saying his time is short. Let's make it even shorter. And let's start something. Is that what Judas is expecting? He has no intention of Jesus being killed. Instead, he, he wants a fight to start. And he wants Jesus to be on the winning side of it. Instead of the losing one. That's definitely a possibility. We'll see some possible confirmation of that, of that speculation in the way he responds later on. But even if, whether he's hoping for a fight for Jesus to win or hoping for a fight that Jesus will lose, he's expecting a fight one way or the other. And so, yes, he brings his army with him. It does make me wonder, did you miss the message these past three years? Have you been so focused on the power of Christ that you missed the personality of Jesus? You saw lion everywhere you looked and never learned to recognize the lamb. Are we guilty of that sometimes? Do, is it all shock and awe for us and we want more miracles and the kind of Messiah we are expecting instead of accepting the Messiah that has come? Oh, so interesting to try to get into the mind of Judas here. In the Matthew account of this, by the way, this is chapter 26, verse 48 through 50, we see what Judas now does. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign. In the Mark account, he calls it a token. So interesting. These are just going to be some signs, some symbol that lets you know something beyond the actual act. Okay? Signs and tokens can be used for positive things. They're here. Can they, be, they can be counterfeited and used for negative purposes. But this sign, this token, Judas tells his army in advance, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he. Hold him fast. Mark says, lead him away safely. Again, do you get that sense of I'm scared to death of what's about to happen, what's about to go down? I mean, if Jesus can do anything, hold, hold his hands down. Don't let him raise them to the heavens to call down fire from above, okay? Lead him away safely. Hold him fast. I'm going to need an army to do it. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master. Isn't that the word that so often the scribes and Pharisees used? Master or rabbi. It's kind of sickening to hear it on Judas's lips. Speaking of lips, after saying, Hail, Master, he kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Remember, wherefore is why. Why are you here? What's your real purpose? Is it to begin a messianic revolution? Is it to betray me into the hands of sinners? Why have you come? What are you hoping for, friend? So interesting, he calls him that. It's the same word that the king used for the man without the wedding garment on in the parable of the marriage of the king's son. Friend, you could have been friend to me. Why weren't you? But with that betrayer's kiss, then came they, the army, and laid hands on Jesus and took him. In Luke's version, Jesus said, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? So... Shocked.
amazed, astonished, that that would be the sign or token you choose? Not pointing at me, but no, coming, drawing near me with your lips when your heart is far from me? Taking a sign of friendship. Maybe there was irony in what Jesus, the title Jesus gave to him. Friend, that's what friends do. A friendly kiss on the cheek. Un abrazo, as they say in Latin America. And that's how you get what you want? By some outward token of affection? Oh, that, even the way you phrase it like that should give us pause in how we approach people. And are we offering signs of affection, tokens of love, just because we want them to go along with our desires and do things our way instead of honoring them and their will and their individuality? Now, there's all kinds of problems. This is a messed up moment. And Judas is behind it all. Now, John's version of all of this is far more intense. We started with him, but now we're going to come back to him. Matthew, Mark, Luke mention it, but it's more of a gentle, you picture the army there, that's, the pressure's on, Judas comes, gives Jesus the kiss. Whether he wonders if a fight or not, there's no fight, it's not lion, it's lamb, and they lead Jesus away, gently. In John's, there's a lot more drama going on. So in chapter 18, verse 4 and 5, here comes the army, lanterns, torches, weapons, and all. And Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, he's not surprised by this at all, he went forth, there he is, entering the lion's den, walking toward the army, not running away from it. And he said unto them, you can picture him kind of looking at Judas out of the corner of his eye, but addressing the army, whom seek ye? And the army answers, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. So <laughs> Judas would have been able to point him out anyway. But no need. Jesus outed himself in the face of an army that for whatever reason didn't seem to recognize him. Was it the darkness of the garden? Boy, it should have brought more lanterns and torches. Was it that he looked so different than usual in this blood-stained robe, hair matted down against his face? Who is this? But Jesus coming to them, whom are you seeking? Uh, uh, Jesus of Nazareth? This is not what they're expecting. They're ready for a fight, and here comes somebody unafraid of them? He seems to be the master of the situation. Oh, yes, master indeed. Hail, master. And when they say we're seeking Jesus, I mean, if, if you're looking for a way out, this is your time. This is your chance, Jesus. They don't know who you are. Do you point at Peter and say, well, there he is, and then you run? <laughs> no, that's not what Jesus is going to do. He identifies himself. No traitor's kiss necessary. And how does he do it? I am he. Or if you stick with the, the Greek itself, I am. 
Just like he said before the stones were about to f- come flying, when he, as he taught in the temple and said, before Abraham was I am. This is Jehovah of the Old Testament. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God of the burning bush. <laughs> no torches needed. This is the light of the world. This is the great I am. And I am is standing before you. Is that really who you want? No wonder, verse 6, as soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, or back to the Greek, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. Can you picture this played out before you? He's the one that should have been running. You've got an army against 12. 11 scared to death apostles, kind of still rubbing the sleep from their eyes. And then one man that is evidently suffering from blood loss looks, does he have any strength to even stay standing? Oh, he's got all the strength in the world, it seems. Instead of him collapsing in the face of the army, it's the army that retreats in the face of the great I am. This is such an incredible moment. And then what happens? He's like, okay, it worked. Now hurry, this is our chance to escape. This is our chance to retreat, since they retreated first. No. Instead, it's a repeat of what just happened the first time. Then asked he them again, whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. It certainly couldn't be that guy because he seems so bold in the face of our, our army bearing down. But Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, if I'm really the one you want, and maybe this is why he was asking this from the very beginning, whom do you seek? If they said Jesus and all his apostles, ooh, okay, then we all would have had to go, or would we? Instead, it's like he tricked them with a beautiful question. Who are you after? Who is, who's listed on the arrest warrant? Assuming you went through the legalities of, of getting one. Uh, 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 Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, good. Because that's me. That's not these other 11. So the way he says, for their sake, if therefore ye seek me, then let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake, of them which thou gavest me have I lost none. I'm not going to lose anybody tonight. I'm not going to lose Peter, James, and John. I'm not going to lose Nathaniel and Philip and Thomas. I'm not going to lose any of them. They're mine. And so if you want me, fine, you can have me, but these get to go. So instead of using them as a human shield, he uses himself as the human shield and says, take me and let these go. This is a captain going down with his ship. This is a captain making sure everyone else gets on the life raft knowing full well there won't be room enough for him. But that's Jesus for you. Now, Peter was having none of this. And in verse 10, then Simon Peter, and yes, he's both. (laughs) There's a Simon side, but there's a Peter side. And it's the Peter side. It's like Simon, he let fall asleep. But who woke up in the aftermath? Peter did. Full rock and all. He, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus which I'm always fascinated by. In fact, John would bring that up. And yet, Jesus always seemed to. He knew the name of blind Bartimaeus 
in his dad's name. How's Timaeus doing, son? You haven't seen him in, well, you've never seen him. Do you want to see him now? Jesus knows names, even the names of enemies, the names of servants of some false high priest. He's worth remembering. He's worth knowing by name. He's worth healing. Maybe Malchus wasn't there at his own will. He's a servant after all. And, whoa, 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 Peter, we're going, I'm going as a lamb to the slaughter. There's no need to try to slaughter any of the wolves that have come. Okay? So put the sword away, will you? It's interesting because Peter, in some ways, I think is felt, at least, fully justified in what he's doing. What did Jesus already said? Hey, if you got person script, bring him. If you don't have a sword, go sell a garment to go get one. Like, well, we got two, and if, there, if anybody gets one, I, I want one. Peter's all dibs on one of them. I'm surprised he didn't hold both of them, <laughs> okay? I don't know who got the other sword, but Peter's got one in hand. And you wonder, as he's awakened in the darkness, uh, shadows you know, coming from, from the sides of the garden, and pretty soon, lanterns and the sound of rustling arms and an army here, and does Peter start reaching under his robes to get a grip on that sword? Does he silently unsheathe it, ready to strike? There's actually a fascinating detail in the Luke account of all of this. This is Luke 22, 49 and 50. When they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? So they've got the question. I was like, they're, they're remembering too. He did say we were supposed to bring some. Is it go time? Is an army's now here? We're recognizing what we're up against. Is this why you told us to bring the sword? Are we supposed to smite? Can you picture them whispering behind Jesus, kind of hoping that he can answer without the army hearing so they can maybe start, the, the, get a jump on them, some kind of surprise attack. They probably don't, don't expect us to be armed here in the garden. And what's interesting about this moment, as soon as the word sword is uttered or whispered, the next verse, and one of them, we know it's Peter from the other accounts, one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. <laughs> Good old Peter jumping into the fray at the first mention of a fight. Bold, fearless, this is the strength side of his coin. We've seen the weakness side of it, too. And remember, those strengths and weaknesses are all part of the same coin. It's, it's heads, tails. It's the same attribute. And the things that we get frustrated about, Peter putting his foot in his mouth, is because he was willing to open his mouth and just jump in uh, whether or not he was prepared for it. It does seem really true to his personality. That even before Jesus answers the question, they're all, hey, should we fight? And, and Peter, fight, fight, okay, we're going. And <laughs> Peter, what are you doing? Now, imagine the, the moment, the intensity, the drama of the moment. You've got an army who's coming because Judas has probably told them, we need to hold them fast and take, take them away safely. And I, do we have enough weapons? Do we have enough men in this great multitude? You got the apostles on, on edge with sword in hand and ready to go, Jesus seems to be the only one who's the master of the situation. And he's calm as a summer's morning, silent as a sheep before his shearer. But all of a sudden, it's, the silence is broken by the shriek of pain by one man who's clutching his ear and blood is running down his face. And it's right then, you can picture 
everyone frozen but ready to leap into action. I remember as a kid, it's a horrible example, but we'd been at this, it was called Boys State, and they take the seniors from all these different high schools in California and brought them all to Sacramento to kind of play out what would it be like to run the government. And I was voted to go to this thing, and I'm not interested in politics much, but I was like, oh, it'll be an interesting experience, I'll go. Well, I had heard horror stories that all week long, people had been preparing for a food fight our last day. We were at a college campus and we're living in the dorms and having a great experience learning about politics and government and so on. And I'm like, we're going to do a food fight? Are you kidding me? That's, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. But I remember being at the last lunch in the cafeteria at this college and, and everyone was on edge because the rumors had spread. And I was like, is anybody going to do this? Well, I remember, I think it was the pudding cup heard round the world because somebody threw an open pudding cup. It was like high ceiling cafeteria and it flew across and then splattered on a table on the other side of the, of the cafeteria and chocolate pudding went everywhere. People getting, you know, pudding shrapnel wounds. And, and then it was silence and nobody moved because it was like, is, is this really happening? Is it, are we throwing down? Is it go time? And I guess everybody decided, yes, it is. Because the one shot, the moment of <gasps> anticipation, like everyone inhales and then boom, full speed ahead. I just remember diving under the table. I didn't want to have anything to do with it. I didn't want to be part of the problem. I dove, dove under the table. It was like stop, drop and roll or like uh, get, get in, in, in safe position and then all heck broke loose. And there was pudding and yogurt and sandwiches and, and milk cartons and it was a, a massive mess. And yes, we all got incredibly busted as a result. Uh, th this was the Boston Tea Party when they had expected good, good citizens to, to be ready to, to hold the reins of government at some point. Okay? Maybe that's why California is such a, such a mess right now. <laughs> no offense my fellow Californians. Anyway, to understand the moment here and what do we do with that one act and Peter's ready to go start slicing through the rest of the army and the army's ready to go swarm on everybody else and lead Jesus away safely. Well, what does happen? Master of the situation, Matthew 26 verse 52, then said Jesus unto him, to Peter, Put up again thy sword into his place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Is that really the way you want to go down, Peter? If you want to trust in the arm of flesh, so be it. They have more flesh on their arm. <laughs> we got an army of 11 and, I'm, and one of them is not going to fight? That's me? Yeah, take on a well-trained army with two swords. No. Now, if you want to trust in a better sword, the sword of the Spirit, the sword of the Word of God, then yes, put your trust in that, and you'll win by that one. But if you want to fight by a temporal sword, you'll perish by a temporal sword. He then says to Peter, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? I mean, a legion... Oh, depending on who you ask, some number at 5,000 soldiers, others number at 6,000 soldiers. Either way, get 12 legions of angels. 
angels that would be immune to mortal weapons. In some ways, I'm getting a flashback from Jesus at the top of the temple 30, or excuse me, three years ago when Satan quotes the Psalms and says, hey, leap off because surely the Father will send angels down to save you lest you smite your foot against a stone. Well, how about being smitten by a Roman army or a, a Jewish one or a mixed multitude, whatever Judas was able to assemble? Surely the angels will come. Well, Jesus knew that they could, but he'd already asked three times if there was some other way, and there wasn't. And so he meant it when he said, nevertheless. He, his will was fully to do the will of the Father. So, uh, Peter, <laughs> angelic hosts. I am the Lord of hosts, after all. And hosts means armies when it's used in the Old Testament. I'm the Lord of armies. I didn't call anyone to attention. I've got troops. The more the, those that be with us are more than those that be with them. But I didn't, I didn't sound the charge. <laughs> and you're cutting off ears? <laughs> oh, Simon. I don't know if your aim's off or if you've... Have you ever used a sword before? You should have brought your nets from fishing. You could have caught a whole multitude. <laughs> but you cut off an ear. Hmm, interesting. I picture Simon feeling really sheepish right now. Like, <laughs> again, everyone else is arm, you know, sword in hand, ready to fight, and, and he's kind of tiptoeing backwards, retreating, and, and, and with tail between his legs, like, uh, sorry about your ear, man. Um, <laughs> and sorry, Jesus, for my lack of faith. What Jesus does next, Matthew 26, verse 54, he continues speaking, preaching. He says, how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled, that thus it must be? Jesus knew his scriptures. He'd read his patriarchal blessing. He knew how Isaiah 53 ended. And he was here to fulfill it. Jesus had long known it had to be this way. He didn't shy away from it. He certainly wasn't going to do it now. I love that phrase. Thus it must be. And then Matthew says, In that same hour said Jesus to the multitudes. So now he's addressing his enemies. Are ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? By the way, thief here is better translated bandit or brigand, some kind of insurrectionist, which is either what Judas was hoping he would be or what the army was afraid he would be. Either way, it's what Barabbas actually was. He really was an insurrectionist, a bandit, a brigand, a thief. Well, Jesus goes on, I'm not any of those. I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and ye laid no hold on me. Luke then adds this interesting phrase, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. And then Matthew ends, but all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples forsook him and fled. As prophesied, the shepherd was about to be smitten and the sheep were being scattered. Jesus had told them to. He said, if you're after me, fine, then take me. But let these guys go. And I'll stand, I'll, I'll occupy the army. You guys retreat. Get out of here. And live on. Live to fight another day. And fight with the arm of God, not the arm of flesh. Go and wield some real swords. 
two metal ones is not enough. But spirit and word, you've got this. If we think back to what Luke added, though, in the Savior's words, ah, no wonder you're coming now. This is your hour. This is the power of darkness. I'm surprised you even brought torches and lanterns, because darkness seems to be your element. No wonder you never arrested me during the light of day. You had plenty of chances. I taught in the temple all the time. I wasn't trying to hide. No. But I guess you were. Hmm. It seems to suggest that this arrest points to your guilt more than mine. The fact you would have to do it this way lets me know that you know you don't have a legal leg to stand on. It's so interesting what Jesus is turning the tables as always and points out to them, if this were a legal arrest, you've had every opportunity to do it. But no, you fear the multitude. Yeah, I've heard that. You want to take the light of the world under cover of darkness because this is your time of night. Well, fine. I'll go. But let these go. And they do. They all flee. Luke then adds this detail in chapter 22, verse 51. And Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear and healed him. So is he speaking to the army? Is he speaking to his apostles? Suffer ye this thus far. In other words, it has to be this way. Just let it happen, okay? Peter, put your sword away. All of you, get out of here. Army, you can put your swords away. There's not going to be a fight tonight. I will come willingly. So suffer ye thus far. And speaking of suffering in a literal way, I can see that this man is Malchus, right? That's, that's the name? Yeah, servant of the high priest. I, I, I love servants. I love everybody, including you. So come here. And he touched the ear and healed him. The only blood that was supposed to be shed that night was Jesus's. And talk about an irony. A man who had just bled from every pore reaches out his blood-stained hand to stop the, the bleeding from a mere flesh wound. Imagine how Malchus feels after that. Is he recognizing the light of the world there in the darkness? Is he wondering, I'm servant of, high, of the high priest, but no, this is the real high priest of good things to come. We saw this last week when it's Jesus' heart that most deserves to be troubled. And yet, what does he say? He comforts those around him. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Here, he's the one suffering, and yet he heals someone suffering infinitely less than he was. And we'll see that over and over and over throughout, the next, throughout this night and into the next day. Jesus losing himself in service to others and finding himself as a result. The John version of all of this then ends with this. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? And by now Jesus knew full well that he would. Peter, I asked three times. And there's no other way. Thus it must be. There's no turning away the bitter cup. There's no sending the army of angels. 
My foot is about to be dashed against the stone. But don't forget, it's that same heel that crushes the serpent's head. Let it go. Let me go. Thus it must be. And with that, the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him, though they didn't need to. Jesus was already bound. His will was bound up in the will of God. He didn't need worldly ropes to keep him at bay. No, I will go with you. And so he does. Mark then includes this really strange detail, only found in the book of Mark, chapter 14, verse 51 and 52. And there followed him a certain young man, having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young men laid hold on him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. And that's it. And you have no explanation. You're like, wait, what the heck was that? And Mark, why on earth would you include that? Huh? Some naked guy running around? What? Okay. Now, first of all, calm down. Naked hardly ever means completely in the nude in the scriptures. Typically, it means not having your robes on, your outer clothing. You still have your loincloth on. You still have your undergarments on. So that's most likely what th this guy was probably asleep or in bed and just sleeping in his underclothing. And then he hears some commotion. Maybe he lives really close. This is the tricky part. We don't know who this person is. We don't have any. It's all speculation. We don't know any details. All kinds of people have made suggestions. Some have suggested, is this Mark? And this is his way of including himself in the narrative. And so it's only in the book of Mark, and he brings, him, brings himself in this way. It's like John in his gospel saying, the apostle that Jesus loved. Well, that's a way better way to do it than Mark going, the guy that was running around in his underclothing, okay, I guess it could be Mark. Others have said, could this be the rich young ruler? And was he trying to follow Jesus from a distance and see what was going on? And, and he had this linen cloth. I'm like, really? Oh, okay, I get possible, whatever. Some have suggested, and again, all of these are speculative. Some have suggested this is Lazarus. I mean, Lazarus lived in Bethany, and that's really close to the Mount of Olives. And so, and some have even suggested, this is where speculation really gets to the extreme. They're like, ooh, and what was the linen garment? It was probably his burial clothing, and he'd kept it as a souvenir. And so he always had it with him, and he was running to be close to Jesus, and, and he leaves this in his hands as a reminder, like, you are the resurrection and the life. You got this. You can do this. And I'm out of here. Ooh, that actually sounds fascinating if this was fan fiction. Um, but we don't know. Glad you're a fan, but that might be fiction. For all we know, it's just some guy that lived close and heard the commotion and run out of, jumped out of, out of bed and grabbed the sheet that he was sleeping in and wrapped up and then went to see what was going on. The JST does say that he was a disciple. Hmm. So at least we know he's on the Savior's side. How much of one was he just out on the, on the Mount of Olives asleep because it was Passover season and there was no room in the inn? Uh, was, he, was it curiosity? Was it courage? What was motivating him? I don't know. The JST also makes another interesting detail. It says that the young man, singular, laid hold on him. Where the King James says, the young men, plural, laid hold on him. In the King James Version, it suggests that it's the army that grabs this guy. Like, who is this guy running around with a, with a sheet? Is this a ghost? What's going on? And they grab the, the sheet 
the cloth and the young man, singular, <laughs> leaves the, the, clo the cloth in the hands of the young men, plural, and he's out of there, running away half naked. But in the JST, if the young man, singular, laid hold on him, you see, who's him then? In the King James, the him is the young man himself. In the JST, the him must be Jesus. That this young man, this disciple, comes running in and lays his hands on Jesus. It's almost, you get a sense there of a disciple wanting to be as close to Christ as possible. And what do we do? I don't have a sword. Do I, can I help in any way? I wish I knew more about this guy and what was motivating him. But when all was said and done, laying hold on Jesus, maybe with just the look in his eye and realizing, you know, Jesus is going as a lamb to the slaughter. And he leaves it in his hand and runs. Either way, whatever the reality might be, since we don't know, I do think the symbolism is beautiful. That here comes someone in the darkness seeking the light of the world. Here comes someone who is covered, but in reality, underneath, he's still naked, quote-unquote, uncovered. And if Jesus ends up going to the enemy and is overcome by them, then I have no hope to be covered at all. I will be fully exposed to the all-seeing eye of God, fully exposed to the demands of justice, fully exposed to my own enemies that will prevail over me. No wonder he comes and tries to lay hold on Jesus. You're the, you're the only hope of covering I have. He who covers Adam and Eve in their nakedness with a coat of skins, he that covers us all with his atoning sacrifice. If we want to be fully covered, the only hope we have is to come into Christ. Otherwise, we will run away in nothing but our underclothing. Well, whatever happened then, we next see a sneak peek at Friday morning. This is in the, or at least we're going to take a sneak peek, okay? Because here we're still in the darkness and Jesus is going to be carried off captive, bound, to be brought before the high priest, or quote-unquote high priest, I should say, since he really deserves the title. For our sake, though, can we just quickly jump ahead to Matthew 27, 1 through 10, or 3 through 10, really? Because this is the aftermath for Judas. Because it's here, Jesus is brought away by the army, and it kind of leaves Judas, is he standing there alone? It doesn't say that he follows the army back with Jesus. It's like he's done his job, and and... Is he left in the shadows, all alone, wondering, what have I done? We don't hear anything more from Judas until Matthew 27 begins. And Matthew gives us this brief account of the aftermath of the betrayal. And let's get, take, let's get it taken care of now, and then we'll leave Judas behind. And we'll follow Jesus to Caiaphas' palace. We'll see Peter and John with him. And that's where we'll finish our, our lesson today. Uh, trigger warning, by the way. This is, the aftermath includes a suicide. So if you, uh, if this is a, a topic that you just cannot listen to, then please skip ahead to the next part of this lesson and we'll be, 
will be with Jesus at Caiaphas' palace. But for those that can sit in the moment and listen to what, what Judas does next, this is Matthew 27, verse 3. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned. So this is, again, we have to fast forward to get to this moment. Jesus has already been through the Jewish trials and put, keep trials in quotes because it's a mock trial start to finish. He realizes that, oh no, it didn't work. The, uh, if, assuming he was trying to foment some kind of rebellion and jumpstart an insurrection, it didn't work. I thought Jesus was going to fight. He, no, what? He's condemned? This is not what I wanted. Because what happens next, when he saw that Jesus was condemned, he repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See thou to that. The JST adds, thy sins be upon thee. You see what they're doing? They're washing their hands of this. And now realizing there's no going back, what does Judas do? He cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. The JST adds, on a tree, and straightway he fell down and his bowels gushed out and he died, which is really a disgusting description here. It's important though because it reconciles the account in Matthew to a later flashback in the book of Acts that seem irreconcilable, as if they were, there's some kind of discrepancy in Scripture. And, and Joseph helps solve that discrepancy by inspiration. You see, in Acts chapter 1, verse 18, when the apostles gather, the 11 survivors come together to try to decide where do we go from here, and they fill the vacancy in the Quorum of the Twelve. Speaking of that vacancy, this is what Peter says about the one who left it. Acts chapter 1, verse 18, Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity. And falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. Again, disgusting there. But the confusion that has resulted is the Matthew account, he hangs himself, commits suicide. In the Acts flashback, it seems that he's, I don't know, running away, and he trips and falls and ends up disemboweling himself somehow as he, split, as he hits the ground. Ugh. According to the, J the JST, it reconciles those two accounts and lets you know that, that they both happened in succession. That he hanged himself upon the tree, but then the body fell. How long had it been on the tree? Had it, would it been just been left there? You're not supposed to, but this man seems cursed and it's a festival of Passover. And so let's not mess with it now during the festival. Let's just wait. And by then, again, uh, let your mind wander, but has it swollen? Is, does it fall? Then the, ugh, it just, it's disgusting. But many a uh, commentator has said, well, it's Judas, so make it as horrific and horrifying a death as you can make it. Uh, be, in all of its disgusting detail, Judas deserved it all. Well, did he? It seems... Oh, suicide is such a hard topic to discuss. And usually it is attempted or committed by people who feel there is no other option. And life has become so unlivable. And there's no hope for anything better on this side of the veil. 
that they end up crossing the veil at their own decision. Oh, well, there's contraries to be proven there and, and where we offer justice and where we offer mercy, and that's a conversation for another day. But in Judas's case, the conversation for this day is, was he a son of perdition? How do we pass judgment on him? Was he right to do this? And if he hadn't, then God would have done it anyway, and, and you're beyond redemption. And so as disgusting a death as you can paint for it, go, go ahead and paint, paint away. Now, on the one hand, it tells us a lot about Satan. If it was Satan that entered into Judas, remember we saw that detail in the Last Supper accounts? Takes the sop and Satan flows in right along with him. He digests him as well. And so it's the adversary that's trying to orchestrate this. Well, how does Judas end up for his diligent service to the prince of this world? Does he get promoted? No. He gets punished. Do you remember at the end of Alma 30 when you meet Cor you've met Korahor, an incredibly successful servant of Satan? But what's the, what's the end story for him? He also suffers a horrifying death, trampled underfoot by people that, sadly, kind of believed like he did. But there's no loyalty among Lucifer's ranks. Now, how does Mormon look back on that and say, thus we see... Well, his takeaway is Satan does not support his children at the last day. Oh, no. He drags them speedily down to hell. And that seems to be the case here with Judas. What? Think about the, the elders of the, of the Jews and the chief priests. And Judas did them a favor. Remember, I came to you. I offered my services. In one of the accounts, I didn't even ask for anything, but you offered to pay me, and I took it. But I don't want it anymore. I, I kept my receipt. Can we just cancel the order and say it never happened? I don't want to have anything to do with this. Here's Judas trying to wash his hands. Well, they've already washed their hands of Judas. So forget it. It's on you. You see to that. <laughs> oh, too late, buddy. We used you. And you were more than willing to be used. So it's all on you now. And feeling there was no hope for him, he went out and ended things. Yes, Satan does not support his children at the last day. But that still doesn't answer the question, was he a son of perdition, though? Perdition, with a capital P, would be Satan himself, right? Perdition means the lost one. And no one was more lost than Lucifer. Sons of perdition, those that fully follow him. It's like father, like son. They want family resemblance on that side of the family tree as well. Well, was he... I know that Jesus used the word son of perdition before. I've, I've kept them all. I've only lost, the only one I've ever lost is the son of perdition. Well, was he talking about Judas there? With a, a betrayal quickly to come? Or was he talking about Lucifer there? With a betrayal that had happened eons ago in pre-mortality. He's the one I really lost that I was hoping to save. I don't know. But if you take the definition of a son of perdition... I really struggle to see how Judas fits the bill. For definition, look at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 6. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, then it's impossible to renew them again 
unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now take all of those criteria and see how many of them apply to Judas Iscariot. They were once enlightened. Well, I would hope that he was enlightened. Three years of following the Savior, that would be pretty enlightening, wouldn't it? Tasted of the heavenly gift, I would assume. But then again, maybe he was, I don't know, just looking at the fruit and squeezing it and thumping it and smelling it and not actually partaking of it. I don't know. Partakers of the Holy Ghost. Mm, he's felt the Spirit, I'm sure, but to receive the gift, that hasn't been an option yet. The, that comforter won't come until Jesus first leaves, right? Or what about this one? Tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come? Again, I don't know. Back to our experience in the garden, had Judas missed the boat these last three years? Had he only seen lion and never seen lamb? Had he focused on power at the expense of principle and personality? Was he still missing something? It seems like it, especially based on the aftermath. Because once he comes to himself, this prodigal son, and comes rushing back to a wrong father and brother, uh, saying, I, I, do over. Okay, undo, undo. I, I don't want to have anything to do with this. And they're like, it's your problem. Keep the money. And he can't. He won't. He throws it back at them. I want nothing to do with this. And now that it's too late to go back, what have I done? I can't change. I can't reverse the effects of my decision. It's over for me. And he ends it all. That doesn't sound like what we see at the end of Hebrews 6, verse 6. They crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. It wasn't an open shame that Judas was seeking. It was behind the scenes. It was under cover of darkness. And crucify him afresh? That means do it again? That's a son of perdition. The way Joseph Smith described it, it's like staring into the sun and denying that it's shining. And to couple that with these words here from Hebrews, imagine the Son of God resurrecting standing before you in all his celestial, sun-like glory. And you basically spit in his face and go, oh, I wish I could, if I could do it all over again and crucify you a second time, even knowing full well that you already rose from the tomb the first, man, if I could do it a second time and keep it permanent this time, I would. Wow, how's that for defiance? In section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants, when it describes sons of perdition, it says they don't just deny, they defy. We're going to see Peter deny later today. He never defies. And we see Judas betray, but does he, does he defy Jesus? He certainly doesn't try to put him, he doesn't try to crucify him afresh unto himself. No, once he realizes that crucifixion is what awaits Jesus, he wishes there were a way to stop the first one, not repeat it a second or infinite number of times. It does not seem that Judas qualifies as a son of perdition. As someone lost, certainly, but not like the lost one himself. Not that belligerent in his betrayal. In fact, Joseph F. Smith said this about Judas. That Judas did partake of all this knowledge 
that these great truths had been revealed to him, that he had received the Holy Spirit by the gift of God and was therefore qualified to commit the unpardonable sin? That is not at all clear to me. To my mind, it strongly appears that not one of the disciples possessed sufficient light, knowledge, nor wisdom at the time of the crucifixion for either exaltation or condemnation. For it was afterwards that their minds were opened to understand the scriptures and that they were endowed with power from on high, without which they were only children in knowledge in comparison to what they afterwards became under the influence of the Spirit. I'm really grateful for President Smith's insight there. They don't, it doesn't seem like they knew enough. They hadn't received the Spirit. They hadn't fully partaken of things. They, I mean, remember, even Peter, when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. If the chief apostle still lacked conversion, then Judas, was he acting at least in some degree of ignorance? And admittedly, wishing with all his heart he could go back and do things differently. You know, it does make me wonder about the ultimate result of, of denying the Holy Ghost, that being the unpardonable sin. And what makes it unpardonable? Is it because God simply says, I will never forgive you? Or is it that the son of perdition says, I will never repent? Is it unpardonable because of God's choice or the person's? It seems that God constantly gives us invitations to come unto him. It's what Jesus had just suffered infinitely for in Gethsemane. And here, Judas, I wish you would have come. They wouldn't change anything, but I could. Imagine if Judas had run back to Jesus and expressed his own remorse, sorrow for sin. I was trying to jumpstart a revolution. I'm sorry. I wanted my Messiah. I, I realized I was wrong. I'm rethinking the last three years and recognizing who you've always been, and I, I somehow missed it. Is there any way we can save you from the cross? I'll grab a sword. I'll, get, I'll gather a new army. Can, if nothing else, will you forgive me? I beg of you. I'm sure Jesus would have. He said it already. Oh, you can deny me, and that's forgivable. Just don't deny the Holy Ghost. Don't stare into the sun. Oh, you haven't seen me in all my brightness quite yet, Judas. I would say there's hope, even for him. I certainly hope so, since there's a bit of Judas in me and in all of us. A few final details that Matthew's account then gives us. Verse 6, the chief priests took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore, that field was called the field of blood unto this day. To me, it's so interesting to see the words of these chief priests. I don't know if there's a better example of what Jesus said back in Matthew 23 about scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Remember that one? I mean, a gnat would be an unclean animal, and I certainly want to, don't want to drink the floaties if there's a gnat in there. And yet they're choking down camels thinking they're okay? That's what they're doing here. 
they have just paid blood money to Judas to betray and falsely accuse Jesus so that they can then send him off to death. It's blood money and they fully know it. They admit it themselves. But, oh, it would be unlawful to use blood money to, to put in the treasury. I mean, I wish we could because then that would somehow line our own pockets. Uh, but no, 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 no. That's for rich people and widows with their, their mites like they're worth anything. No, we can't do that. What, what are we going to do with this? You see what they did? They swallowed the camel of crucifixion, but they're straining out the gnat of unlawful temple donations since this happens to be blood money. Oh, this is, this is horrifying. Their level of rationalization and justification, their, their hypocrisy down to the core. They've got, they've got camels sticking out between their teeth whenever they show that wicked grin. So what are we going to do? We'll, we'll just buy a field. And we'll be able to buy... We'll, we can bury strangers there. Now, verse 9 and 10, one last insight that Matthew gives us. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord appointed me. So there's Matthew, as usual bringing up every potential fulfilled prophecy from the Old Testament he can. And this is actually an interesting one. He quotes, he says it's from Jeremy the prophet, which is Jeremiah for short. And yet there's not a clear prophecy in the book of Jeremiah along those lines. There is the one from Zechariah 11 that we talked about last time, or two, I guess two lessons ago, where Zechariah makes it clear that, yes, you're going to weigh my price and it's going to end up being 30 pieces of silver. And Judas fulfills that to the T. But Jeremiah, what, what, what is this? In some ways, what Matthew is doing is he's fusing, it's kind of a mashup here, of Zechariah and Jeremiah and seeing a fulfillment in the life of Jesus based on this, on this mashup. Because Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 6 through 9, talks about weighing money to purchase a field. In that, it's not 30 pieces of silver. It was like 17, if I remember correctly. And it was when Jeremiah was in prison and he's prophesying, trust me, stay in Jerusalem. Uh, if we'll just surrender to the Babylonians, all will be well. In fact, I'll prove to you that I have long-term, uh, a long-term view in sight by buying land. And if we're, I mean, if we're all going to be destroyed right now by the Babylonians, then there's no use in spending money to buy land. But if we'll surrender, and yes, carried captive back to Babylon, fine. I promise we'll be brought back. So this, this land, I'll eventually be able to settle on, or at least my descendants will. And so watch me. And he purchases this land from a relative. Uh, in fact, he redeems the land, is what it's called. Interesting. Uh, now, what Matthew's doing is he's seeing what happens with Judas and this field of blood, and it's purchased for strangers, and he's thinking, oh, wait a minute. I mean, if you know your Old Testament well enough, like Matthew does, a Jew writing to fellow Jews, he's like, oh, this is an amazing analogy. It's not, uh, necessary, it's not specifically a prophecy being fulfilled, but talk about an interesting parallel that... Take Zechariah, and yes, there's fulfilled prophecy, but take Jeremiah, good old Jeremy. And man, Jesus is, he's redeeming land through the 
price of his own blood. I mean, I guess technically Judas is, well, technically, technically, it's these chief priests and scribes that are doing it. But isn't it amazing, Matthew seems to be suggesting, that even in being betrayed, Jesus is redeeming land for strangers. He's giving even outsiders who have no hope for some eternal resting place themselves, at least not in their own land, space is being provided for them in a local cemetery, right close to the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Ascension itself, close to the Temple Mount. What a place of honor to give these strangers an eternal resting place. It's amazing what Jesus can do, even when betrayed. He can turn ashes into beauty. And he can turn blood money, his own money from the blood of betrayal, into a resting place for those who have no place to rest. There's some beautiful symbolism there. It also helps you see how flexible Matthew felt he could be with Scripture and weaving allusion and analogy into prophecy and bringing Scripture together. It, it really was a beautiful gift that Matthew had. I'm grateful for it. Now, from Judas then, can we turn to Peter? And we'll shift from betrayal to denial. This is another sad story, and it's one that I hope we see ourselves in instead of just assuming the worst about Peter. Let's work on Lord is it I. But for this, we'll start with Matthew 26, verse 57. And they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. So you got an army in the field and you got an army back home. Okay? And this army of scribes and elders is there in the, in the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest. Let's take him to the Jewish authorities first. Now, then again, it wasn't straight to Caiaphas. John lets us know he went to someone else along the way. Caiaphas, yes, technically is the high priest, but Caiaphas's father-in-law was a guy named Annas, who was much older, but still held on to a lot of authority. Annas had been high priest earlier on. Annas would have been high priest during Jesus's childhood, kind of fresh back from Egypt. Uh, and he's up in the Galilee, but who's running the show down in Jerusalem? Well, Annas is. Now, eventually the Romans were probably a little concerned about Annas's power grabs, and so they're like, okay, this is just a, a puppet position anyway, because we won't touch Judaism with a 10-foot pole as far as your weird religious rituals and stuff. So we, we put a little puppet uh, to run the show, but, but we want a puppet that we can control. with. The, we want to hold the strings. And Annas isn't that kind of guy. So we're going to depose Annas, remove him from authority. And uh, who, who else do you want to be in charge? Well, the high priesthood went through five sons of Annas and then ended up in the hands of his son-in-law, Caiaphas. So you can still kind of see Annas behind the scenes working his, his magic. Can we at least keep it in the family? And when the sons were still too close to the action, well, fine, let's marry somebody in and we'll bring Caiaphas in. And I can still kind of hold his puppet strings. How's that? Annas still wielded a ton of authority, even though Caiaphas had been in charge for a long, long time. I mean, he ran the show in Jerusalem from, I think, like A.D. 
18 to 36 or somewhere along those lines. So he was in charge. Caiaphas was in charge when Jesus was brought to the Sanhedrin. He was brought to the council. But Annas is still behind the scenes. And so the soldiers actually bring him to Annas first. And we see that in the book of John. So this is John chapter 18, verse 13. It starts. They led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. So that's John's way of reminding us about a story that was told earlier. You remember when everyone's up in arms, like, how do we kill this Jesus? And, and Caiaphas is like, hey, calm down, guys, calm down. Don't you remember? It's, it's going to be feast time soon, and usually one person is going to die, and it's better that one person die than the whole nation suffer. Uh, so give it time. We'll, we'll be able to work this thing out. Uh, and this is John's rem reminding us of that. So Caiaphas is the one with the, you know, the ace up his sleeve, like, eh, we can stop a rebellion by getting rid of one insurrectionist. And let's make sure it's Jesus, shall we? Now, in verse 19, we're going to skip ahead and then come back to what we skipped. Jump ahead to John chapter 18, verse 19. The high priest, who wasn't actually the high priest anymore, but, you know, power is hard to part with. <laughs> the high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. Interesting that those be the two things on Annas' mind. Uh, what kind of stuff are you teaching? And are people actually buying it? Because we've got to see how far the water has gotten. And every row, well, we're going to have to start plowing up the field. Who are your disciples? It's not enough to just cut off the head. We're going to have to cut off all the, the appendages as well. We've, stricken the, we've smitten the shepherd. Now let's go after the sheep. So tell us about your disciples. Tell us about your doctrine. Now Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whither the Jews always resort, and in secret have I said nothing. So why asketh thou me? Ask them which heard me, what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. I love what Jesus is doing here. We'll see more of this when he meets with Pilate tomorrow and Herod as well. But here before Annas, on the one hand, it's like he's saying, I, I don't have to answer to you. You have no authority. I know that. Neither does your son-in-law, though he technically still does. But this goes back to what he said there in the, in the garden, in the darkness, before the other army. Why didn't you, if you were going to arrest me, why didn't you do it in the light of day? Oh yeah, because this is your hour. You like the darkness. He's saying the same kind of thing to Annas. You'd, why are you asking me about doctrine and disciples? I did all of it out in the open. In fact, I think you're worried about my doctrine, how fast it's been spreading. I think you're concerned about my disciples because they're everywhere. A little late to end things, isn't it, Annas? It's so interesting to me to see Christ's control of the situation. He's the real high priest. He's the real authority. And he's standing before them in bonds. But one other thing to consider, when Jesus says, you want to know about my doctrine and my disciples? Well, let's go two for the price of one. Go ask my disciples about my doctrine. They'll be able to tell you. Jesus, in some ways, is leaving his defense in our hands. Rather than defend himself, he's asking his enemies, go ask my friends. Do we know Christ's doctrine well enough to defend him?
Are we enough of a true disciple that Christ can trust us with his defense? I hope so. There's some more studying I want to do before I get ready for the court case. Okay? But I do want to defend the Savior who always defends me. Well, that's a pretty amazing answer, although it's not the answer that Annas wanted and certainly not the answer that his little minions expected from Jesus. So verse 22, when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? And Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? Now Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas the high priest. And that's where we get back to where Matthew, Mark, and Luke were talking, where it's like, oh, yeah, it's at Caiaphas that he went. But no, Annas along the way. Can you see Annas, like now, is backpedaling, retreating, like, okay, God, I'm not in charge because this guy beat me and not be me beating him. In fact, beating him, beating him. Why did you beat Jesus? Why did you smite him? Well, because he was talking smack to you. It's such an interesting moment here that it's disciples coming to the rescue of their masters. And here this officer, feeling like Annas just got offended, goes and smacks Jesus upside the head. He does it with the palm of his hand, notice. He didn't even think Jesus was worth a clenched fist. So it is more a slap, open-handed slap. Let's see who's, who's going to be offended here. And if you don't take Annas's office seriously, then we're not going to take anything seriously about you. And here comes the smack. But Jesus, again, mastered the situation. Nothing to defend himself, but simply asks this officer, if I've done something wrong, don't make this some kind of character assassination. You have no reason to slap me. If I've done something wrong, tell me what it was. If you have anything to say. Jesus is always master of the situation. If I've done something evil, bear witness of the evil. But since there's been no evil done, I'm simply saying you have all the evidence you've ever wanted. I guess you're admitting, Annas can't provide any, and neither can you. So what do you do? You just attack. Just like Annas and Caiaphas and, and Pilate and everyone else just wants to attack with no justification for what they're doing. Beware of those that can't give you reasons for their attacks, but simply want to character assassinate instead. A smite across, a slap across the face, as we saw here. Well, now the camera's going to shift from Annas to Caiaphas. Annas was just the, the puppet anyway. Caiaphas technically is in charge. It's got to go to his palace. But before we go inside, where we meet Caiaphas and his minions, let's figure out what's happening outside the palace. Because there's like all kinds of commotion everywhere you look. So go back to John chapter 18, verse 15 and 16. Those are the verses we skipped. And Simon Peter followed Jesus. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics, all say he followed him afar off. You get a sense that, yeah, Peter must know the danger here. He wants to get close, but not too close. I want to be there handy if Jesus needs me. I, maybe I still have my sword tucked away under my cloaks, but uh, not too close, okay, afar off. And Peter wasn't alone in this. So did another disciple. And you know how John was. <laughs> Ever the, the humble writer, he never talked about himself in the first person. It was just this other disciple. So it's most likely John that's going along too. Peter and John are on their way. Now, that disciple, John, was known unto the high priest and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. It's like, oh yeah, we went him? You're with him? Okay, yeah, come on in. Now, Peter, meanwhile, 
he stood at the door without. Then went out that other disciple, which was known unto the high priest, and spake unto her that kept the door, and brought in Peter. So, like, are you watching this? You're picturing how this is unfolding? John gets let in. He's without his wingman, uh, or I guess he is Peter's wingman. So he goes back out and talks to the servant girl and says, hey, hey, he's with me. Can, you, can he come in too? And so Peter is now in Caiaphas' palace, just like John is. And I have a feeling this is exactly how Peter would have wanted it. He's willing to jump into the fray and cut off an ear when there's an army on the other side. He's not afraid of Caiaphas' palace. Bring it on. Lions, well, let me into the den. And he comes in at, with, with John's help. Then verse 17 and 18. Then said the damsel that kept the door unto Peter, Art not thou also one of this man's disciples? And he saith, I am not. Now, there's the first denial. By the way, I am not is a perfect parallel, or I guess I should say a perfect perpendicular to what Jesus had just said in the darkness of the garden. I am he. Who are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. Well, you're looking at it. I am he. And here, Peter facing a servant girl, not an army. Who are you seeking? Peter, a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. It wasn't, I am he. It was, I am not. Now, what happens next? The servants and officers stood there who had made a fire of coals, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Matthew adds to this, by the way, that Peter went in and sat with the servants to see the end. He wants to see where this is going to go. Jesus has been oh, surrounded by his enemies repeatedly. And he always seems to get out, get, get away from them. Remember when they wanted to throw him off the edge of the cliff in Nazareth and he just passed through the midst of them and went his way? How did he do that? I'm still trying to figure that out. Or when he said, before Abraham was, I am, and they picked up stones to cast at him, and he's just somehow escaped from the Temple Mount with enough time to talk to this man born blind and heal him. Now, Jesus always seems, to see the end is the phrase Matthew used. And as far as Peter is concerned, oh, there's no end. There never can be. Jesus is going to get out of this one too. And I'm going to be here to see it. In fact, I'm going to be here to help. Just you wait. So, uh, servant girl, no, I'm not, I'm not with him, though I really am, and want to be as close to him as I can. I've just, I'm not t technically denying him, by the way, okay? This doesn't count as one of the three. Come on, I'm doing this for Jesus' sake, okay? I'm certainly not scared of some servant girl. So, don't put this, don't, don't mark this down as one of the three. Uh, no, I'm here to see the end. And I'm certainly not going to out myself in the midst of all these <laughs> servants and soldiers and people here in Caiaphas' palace itself, I'm not going to out myself to a servant girl. No, I'm not, I'm not the guy you're looking for. Now, we're going to come right back to see what Peter's going to do with a second and third possibilities. We, and again, no spoiler alert needed. You know the, this, the end of this story. But I also wonder if we're, we're going to allow for Peter's strength, but we also need to account for Peter's weakness. And I wonder if, as usual, he's overestimating his strength and underestimating his weakness. I'm guilty of that as well. Because where is he? He's following Jesus. Oh, that's good. Well, but if you've already been warned, you're going to deny Jesus three times tonight. And of all the places it's likely to happen, it would probably be at Caiaphas' palace. 
I've sometimes talked with my own students and asked them, can you imagine if your patriarchal blessing warned you on a specific day, and it told you the day, you will break the law of chastity? Whoa, whoa, wait, what? That always gets their attention. Like, can you imagine if the Lord warned you that specifically a major sin is going to take place on such and such a day? And I've asked them, what would you do on that day? And it's always interesting to hear their responses because they're like, uh, I think I would like lock myself in the closet somewhere and not tell anybody where I am. I'm not going to bring my phone in with me because then people have access. No, I'm going to mark that day and from midnight till midnight next, I am in lockdown. And there's no possible way I can break the law of chastity. I'll say, oh, but what if there's this really cool party going on that night and all your friends are going and they really want you to come? Uh, no, 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 definitely not a party. Because I might meet people. Um, uh, like, well, what if it was a date? Like, no, but by all means, I'm definitely not going on a date. But what if, I mean, you're a strong person and you know the law of chastity. You've always lived the law of chastity and your girlfriend lives the law of chastity. Or it's an, an LDS party. It's all member friends that are going to be there. And they promise you it's all above board. It's going to be fine. Would you go? And they're like, absolutely not. What, you doubt yourself? Well, yeah, a little. Enough to take it really seriously when somebody was that specific saying you're going to commit this sin on this day. I'll just outlive the day. And I've outlasted the sin. Jesus had go told him the day. This night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me thrice. If that's even a possibility, Peter then what on earth are you doing at Caiaphas' palace? I think we must be much more careful and recognize our own weakness before we cavalierly, overconfidently, throw ourselves into harm's way. How does Paul say it? Avoid even the appearance of evil. Which doesn't just mean appearance as in things that look like sin, but how about appearance as in places where sin might appear? Places where temptation might lurk and wickedness rear its ugly head and I might fall prey to it. No, get out of those situations. I will go nowhere near the palace of Caiaphas if there's a chance that I might deny the Christ. Well, in Peter's case, it's only been one and it's just this servant girl and that doesn't really count. I've still got, I've got wiggle room. Okay, I haven't done it three times. But pause here and go back inside, okay? We'll leave Peter out in the courtyard. Matthew and Mark tell us that now Jesus is standing before Caiaphas. And we'll use the Mark account as home base. Chapter 14, verse 55. And the chief priests and all the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death and found none. Matthew says they sought false witness. So they knew from the very start. Anyone, any false witnesses out there? I mean, they're looking for someone. They don't have... On what charges has this person been arrested? I mean, don't, don't, aren't there Miranda rights? Don't I get to know what the charges are against me? Well, no, we haven't found them yet. We haven't trumped them up because we haven't found enough false witnesses that can agree with one another. Well, they know from the start that falsehood is their only hope. Not even that is working, but they're going to keep trying. The account goes on. For many bear false witness against him, 
but their witness agreed not together. <laughs> so it's like, you guys are the dumbest liars I've ever heard. Don't you know that you're supposed to get together before you start telling lies so you can at least get on the same page so that your lies will match? Come on, even, even junior high school kids know that. But no, they can't get liars to agree with one another. So what's next? Mark says, there arose certain. And Matthew says, at the last came two false witnesses. So these ones must have been smart enough to at least agree on their accusation beforehand. These certain ones, these false ones. And they bear false witness against him. And we'll go figure. That's what they've been hired or found to do. And this is what they said. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And within three days, I will build another made without hands. Okay. What is that supposed to mean? And then Mark adds, but neither so did their witness agree together. So even with that one, they still weren't completely on the same page. This is pathetic. This is a comedy of errors. Now, remember that the law of Moses required that by the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Uh, again, a chance for scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites to strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Well, let's, if the law says we have to have two or three, then let's find two. And let's try to get them to agree with each other on their trumped up false charges. Well, when they finally do, they're not in perfect agreement. And what they do come up with is some cryptic statement, not on anything Jesus did, but something they heard him say. So in some ways, they're just making Jesus an offender for a word. And they don't even understand the word. But it was something about destroying the temple. And he's going to then rebuild it. I don't know what that means. But the Romans are not going to like that, since that's like tearing down public property. The Jews aren't going to like that, because it's not just public property. It's the house of God. So, yeah, we definitely need to kill him for that. This whole thing is such a mock trial. It's such a mockery of justice. And here you have the law standing before you. The, law, the Lord is the Lord of law. He's the author of the law of Moses. And yet people are trying to get around it to get to him. Talk about irony. In verse 60... The high priest stood up in the midst. So this is Caiaphas himself rising to his full stature. He asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? You better have words for me. You talk to my father-in-law. Why won't you talk to me? I'm the one in charge. Well, Jesus saw no need or perhaps no purpose in defending himself. But he's standing there. Caiaphas is angry as always. Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But he, Jesus, held his peace and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? In Matthew's version he asks, I adjure thee by the living God, and that's ironic since the living God is standing right in front of him, that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Talk about a bait and switch. What were the charges? Oh, we hadn't found any yet. But once we grabbed you and brought you in, we found false witnesses that accused you of saying something about tearing down the temple. Do you have anything to say about that? And it's not that Jesus is pleading the fifth. He just doesn't even honor that false accusation with any kind of reply. Like I guess I could have said to you what I said to your father-in-law. Go ask my disciples. They'll defend me. But no, I'm not going to defend myself against 
against, against you since you really have no accusation to attack me with. And with that, Caiaphas baits and switches. The bait was bring him in, we're gonna, we're gonna turn him into an insurrectionist. And that doesn't, have, that doesn't have a leg to stand on. And so once Jesus is there, Caiaphas gets to, to the real question and demands an answer to this one. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? Are you the Christ that people have been expecting? Because if it is, it makes you wonder what, if Jesus answered, what's Caiaphas going to do? Are you going to follow me if I say I am the Christ? If I am the Messiah, are you, more, do you, are you demanding a specific type of Messiah? A military one? Do you even want me to overthrow Rome since it's Rome that's allowing you to have some kind of puppet authority? Whereas if Rome wasn't here propping you up, then I'd replace you with a real high priest of good things to come. Well, Jesus does answer this one. In the Luke account, Jesus answers, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I also ask you, you will not answer me, nor let me go. And so, in some ways, what's the point? The die has been cast. Are you really going to change your mind now? I don't think so. You're far past the point of no return. So what would my answer even mean? That's Luke's version. Mark's version, he has a different answer. Jesus says, I am. In Matthew's, it's thou hast said. Like, hey, you said so. You're asking if I'm the Christ? Well, answer your own question. I think you know. But Mark's is my favorite. I am. Because it's that same bold, I am that I am. It's that same opposite of Peter's, I am not. Well, Jesus, I am. And he goes on, and ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Yeah, then you'll know what real power is. You'll know who I am and whose I am. You'll understand authority then. But it'll be too late for you. You've been misusing your authority all along. And tonight is perhaps your worst example of that unrighteous dominion that misuse of power and authority. In verse 63 of Mark 14, then the high priest rent his clothes. Can you picture him doing that just in mock horror? Oh, the, 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 the shame of it all, the blasphemy of it all. I can't believe this. And so tearing his, his regal robes, he saith, what need we any further witnesses? Ye have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. In the Luke version, they say, we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. Now, this is incredibly sly on Caiaphas' part. He'd make a great politician because he is seeking plausible deniability. He's washing his hands just like Pilate will do the next day. Because he's turning it back on the people. Well, you heard him. And forget the false witnesses. They weren't worked out anyway. But this man out of his own mouth. So he's borne witness against himself. That's the only thing we need which, again, is illegal in the law of Moses. But what do you all say? I mean, you heard the blasphemy, didn't you? And then by involving them and letting them decide, oh, yeah, definitely, definitely blasphemy. Right, boss, right? Let's, let's condemn him to death. He's surely guilty of it. It's like, ah, okay, yes. I'm just going to defer to the, to the jury. I'm not passing judgment here. Hmm. So sly what Caiaphas is up to. Well, he leaves, them in, leaves Jesus in their hands. Not a safe place to be. Because in verse 65, 
Some began to spit on him. Matthew makes it more specific. They spat in his face. Others began to cover his face and to buffet him and to say unto him, prophesy. And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. Again, slapping him. He's beneath the clenched fist. In the Matthew version, when they taunt him, they say, prophesy unto us, thou Christ. Can you hear the, the sarcasm dripping off their lips? Who is he that smote thee? They're turning Christ's omniscience into some kind of parlor trick. You see, we can blindfold him and then we'll hit him and then ask him, who did it? Who did it? Did you recognize it? Oh, talk about injustice. Talk about not recognizing who stands before you. Well, they don't care. Some of this happens before the verdict of guilty is reached. Other it happens after. They don't, they don't care. They're having a field day at Jesus' expense. And who's the one doing it? Who smote you? That's the sad reality. In some ways, we all did. And Jesus doesn't have to name names and call out specific sinners because he knows we're all guilty of his death. That's why he came in hopes he could, all, he could make us all innocent of his blood. Well, if that's what's happening inside, let's pan the camera back out and switch back to the courtyard and see what Peter's up to. Now, all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, will all talk about this denial. We saw Peter deny the first time already in the book of John, this damsel who kept the door. Mark calls her one of the maids of the high priest. We saw Malchus, a servant of the high priest. Now we've got one of his maids. And in the Luke version of this, this is chapter 22, verse 56, it says she earnestly looked upon him and said, this man was also with him. And can you picture the earnest look? That's got to make Peter a little uncomfortable to feel like he's being stared at when you're trying to remain incognito. But this maid, she's just, eyes are peering through him, and he's like, can you, <clears throat> where's John when you need him? Um, can you create a diversion? i got to get out from this, this maid's sight. Now, when she says this man was also with him, he denied him, saying, woman, I know him not. So there's that first denial. In fact, the Matthew version, he denied before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest, which is softer than saying, I don't know him. It's like, I don't, I don't crazy woman, I don't know what you're talking about. Now, in the Mark version of that, it says that he denied, saying, I know not, neither understand I what thou sayest. So again, it's kind of passing the buck, and I'm not denying Jesus, I'm just saying, you're crazy, and I don't know what you're talking about. But as soon as that happened, he went out into the porch. So he's trying to get away from this staring, earnest look. He goes out into the porch and the cock crew. And if that doesn't wake him up into a reality of what he's doing, I don't know what does. Then again, Jesus had said three denials and two times of the, of the rooster crowing. And so far, it's only one and one. As I said before, it, it certainly won't happen again. I'm out of the porch, I'm, I'm going somewhere else, or I went into the porch, excuse me, out, I'm leaving the, the scene of the crime. Um, I guess I was a little, I wasn't afar off enough, so I'm going to seek safer, safer pastures, and I'm certainly not going to deny Jesus. 
But then we see verse 69 of Mark 14. And a maid saw him again. Luke says it was after a little while. So maybe Peter's gotten his courage back up and it's like, oh, that was close, but I, I got this, I got this. And some time passes, kind of lulls him back into a false sense of security. But then another maid sees him and began to say to them that stood by. So now there's going to be other people. It's not just going to be a one-on-one -on -one denial. There's others. And she says to them, this is one of them. Now, in Luke's version, it's not a maid, it's a man. And the man addresses Peter directly, thou art also of them. And the Matthew version, this fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. So he's kind of, kind of getting ganged up on, and other people are now in on this, and now all eyes are on Peter, and he's feeling really uncomfortable. In Mark 14, verse 70, he denied it again. In fact, Matthew's version says he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. Okay, fine, two denials, but I'd never do it a third time. And yeah, I guess this time I did say I didn't know him. But that doesn't mean I denied who he is. I know who he is. He is the Christ, the Son of the, of the eternal God. And what do I do? Why did I come this close? Why not, when I left to go to the porch, why didn't I leave to go back to Bethany or back to an upper room somewhere or rally the troops and join with the other apostles? What, what am I doing here? No, I've got to stay to the end. I've got to see this thing through. I, if Jesus gets out of, the, out of here, I want to be here to help. So what do we do next? Verse 70, and a little after, Luke gets more specific about the space of one hour after. So again, maybe he's feeling a little safer. They that stood by said again to Peter, Surely thou art one of them, for thou art a Galilean, and thy speech agreeeth thereto. In Matthew's version, it says, Thy speech bereath thee. In other words, we can tell by your accent. It's like, I'm not from the South. What y'all talking about? It's like, uh, uh, I really do think you're from the South. Uh, you sound like a Galilean. And Jesus of Nazareth, that's the Galilee. You don't sound like a city slicker among the Judeans here in Jerusalem. You're an outsider, and chances are you're one of them. You're one of his. In fact, there's a lot more confidence now. Now they have more evidence, the accent. They're more sure of themselves. Surely thou art one of them. In fact, in the Luke version, it says they confidently affirmed saying, of a truth, this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. Now, you see what Peter's up against? In some ways, yeah, to deny to some servant girl when no one else is looking on, uh, whatever. Uh, that would have been a better time, though, to kind of come to your senses and go, I got to get out of here, or I am going to cross the line ultimately. It's like, oh no, like Samson, again, I can handle lions, I can tear them apart with my own hands. And he puts himself back in harm's way. That's fine, I can get out of this one. And he tears off the city gates and marches away from the Philistine army. Okay, fine, put yourself back in harm's way. But eventually, he came up against a temptation he could not resist. And that was Delilah. In Peter's case, eventually he got to a point where you're... You can't handle this one. And you should have resisted earlier and got out of the situation. But now, 
when there's evidence against you and people are confidently affirming, surely we know now of a truth, what's he going to do? By the way, in John's version, this time, this third time, it was no random servant. Neither maid nor man, nor no-namer. This was one of the servants of the high priest, being his kinsman, whose ear Peter cut off. And he said, did not I see thee in the garden with him? I mean, yikes, now we've got an eyewitness. I was there. You seem to be awfully close to the fray. In fact, you, you look familiar. I, a, a, a near kinsman of mine, ended up getting his, I mean, it was crazy scene. I, I, you would have remembered. In fact, I'm pretty sure I remember you. Uh, I, I should bring my, my kinsman back. Uh, he was going to be at the hospital, but he's not. He's, he had an ear issue, but he's totally fine now. Crazy how that happened. But I wonder if he would recognize you. Now, can you picture Peter swallowing hard, like gulp, like I'm, I'm dead. We've got the ultimate eyewitness now. It, uh, not just my accent. This guy recognizes my face. And he's calling me out. So what's Peter to do? Mark 14, 71 and 72, he began to curse and to swear, saying, I know not this man of whom ye speak. And the second time, the cock crew. Matthew says that the cock crew immediately. And Luke adds, while he yet spake. So you want to talk about a well-trained rooster. Right on cue, as soon as the third denial came from his lips, the second alarm sounded, and Peter realized what he'd done. It says that Peter called to mind the word that Jesus said unto him. And what were those words? Before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. He probably just heard it in Jesus' own voice, ringing through his ears. And when he thought thereon, he wept. Matthew's version is the more famous phrase. He went out and wept bitterly. And if that's Mark and Matthew, Luke includes the most painful detail of all. It says that the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. Can you imagine that? Eyes bearing into the soul. You've had all kinds of eyes on you the last few hours. As people keep staring at you, wondering, trying to put two and two together, where, where have I seen that guy? He speaks up to defend himself. Ooh, he sounds like, I wonder if, the, hey guys, come here. Anyone? No. I'm sure. And he swears and he curses and he's like, how can I be more obvious that I have nothing to do with this situation? And as soon as he said it the third time, the cock crows and, and Jesus looks. At this moment, when he said it, was he looking in at Jesus? Kind of through the open columns? And was he watching Jesus being slapped and buffeted and spat upon? And Jesus doing nothing to defend himself? As he looks in there to see it, Jesus, in the midst of all of this, 
times his turn perfectly, and with the sound of the rooster still echoing off the columns, he turns and looks at Peter, and eye contact, and a flood of memories. I said I'd go to prison with him. Here I am at the palace. I said I'd go to the grave with him. I told him that everyone else might be scattered, but not me. That others, lesser apostles, would be offended, but not your rock. I, I promised. I, but then to look, to see, to make eye contact, and to see disappointment. Not an I told you so on the part of the Lord, but just a look. Was it disappointment? Was it, was it sorrow? Was it sadness? Was it a look of encouragement? Was Jesus looking at Simon or was it looking at Peter? I don't know. Who, who was the chief apostle at this moment? Was he weak? Was he strong? Was he both of the above? Aren't we all? No wonder Peter weeps. And those are bitter tears to match the Savior's bitter cup. Oh, there's so much that we can talk about here. In John's version of all of this, the story ends. Chapter 18, verse 28. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment. And it was early. And they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Again, straining out a gnat, swallowing a camel. I mean, we can't be caught in Roman territory. We don't want to go into the hall of judgment. I mean, technically, Law of Moses says you're not supposed to even hold trials during festivals and feasts. Those are supposed to be times of rejoicing and commemorating God, not condemning our fellow man. This whole thing we've been doing under cover of darkness, we don't want to, this to meet the light of day. Well, it didn't work to condemn him on, in the, the Jewish court. Let's send him off to the Roman court and let Pilate do our, do our dirty work. I mean, technically, we can't execute anyone anyway. The Romans are going to have to do it, so sooner or later it's got to go to him. So let's send him to the Roman side of things. But we're not going to follow because, I mean, it is a, fa a, fa a feast day, and I don't want to defile myself. I mean, I've got to keep myself clean for Passover. Oh, how's the camel taste? Caiaphas. But here we see the shift from night to day, from Caiaphas to Pilate, from Jewish authorities to Roman authorities, and from charges of blasphemy to charges of treason. We are shifting from Gethsemane to Calvary, from atonement to crucifixion. And that's where we'll pick up next week. I hope you'll come back for more. There's so much we need to talk about as Jesus comes to the cross. But to finish this week, in this moment, to kind of freeze frame and pause with tears flowing down Simon Peter's cheeks, recognizing their bitterness, but wondering what lies behind them. For this, again, it's worthwhile to go back to President Kimball 
and let him talk about his brother, Peter. Now, it's, it's President or Elder Kimball's hope to explain what might have been going on in Peter's mind, although he admits he doesn't know for sure. None of us can. But he does say this, much of the criticism of Simon Peter is centered in his denial of his acquaintance with the master. This has been labeled cowardice. Remember that whole list of things that that other Protestant minister had thrown at, at, at Simon's face. But President Elder Kimball says, are we sure of his motive in that recorded denial? He had already given up his occupation and placed all worldly goods on the altar for the cause. If we admit that he was cowardly and denied the Lord through timidity, can we still find a great lesson? Has anyone more completely overcome mortal selfishness and weakness? Has anyone repented more sincerely? Peter has been accused of being harsh, indiscreet, impetuous, fearful. If all these things were true, then we still ask, has any man ever more completely triumphed over his weaknesses? And again, we will see <laughs> triumph in the book of Acts. We will see a full-fledged rock-like Peter leading the fledgling church. No fear ever in his face. Here, is there still fear? Is there still weakness? Yes, but is it the weakness that people accuse him of? Because President Kim or Elder Kimball goes on. He says, is it possible that there might have been some other reason for Peter's triple denial? Could he have felt that circumstances justified expediency? When he bore a strong testimony in Caesarea Philippi, and we've referred to that already, he had been told that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. So think about that. And Jesus has been saying that repeatedly. Keep the messianic secret. So is Peter wondering, is now not the time to speak up in his defense? I mean, what had he just seen Jesus do in the garden? When he first said, I'll never deny you. And Jesus said, oh, you'll deny me three times before the end of the night. That was a different set of circumstances. I didn't think the end was here. You kept suggesting that, yeah, it's here, but it's never really here, is it? You always get out of these kinds of, of, these kinds of situations. And I was going to see to it that this was another one you got out of and lived to tell the day, to tell the tale. But then I saw, I mean, why do you think I drew a sword in Gethsemane? If I'm willing to face an army, you don't think I'm willing to face a, a maid and some servant? I don't care if I am right outside Caiaphas' palace. I still got my sword handy. Now, if this is the same Peter that was bold enough to fight for Jesus, I assume that that hasn't changed. His personality hasn't some suddenly switched to the opposite extreme in a couple of hours. But I wonder if his understanding has deepened and realized maybe this one really is the end. Because Jesus did go as a lamb to the slaughter. I mean, I... I'm still trying to wrap my head around this. He told us to bring swords, and then he refused to let us use them. And then I went and watched, and he didn't defend himself before Annas or Caiaphas. He didn't raise a finger to stop the beating he was taking. 
lamb to the slaughter. Maybe Isaiah's time has come to be fulfilled. In which case, what am I supposed to do? Go with him to the grave? Then where will that leave the fledgling church? I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Now, some people misquote Elder Kimball and say that Jesus was commanding Peter to deny him. When he said, this night thou shalt deny me thrice. Ooh, is that a thou shalt in terms of commandment or a you will in terms of prophecy? Was he telling Peter, you've got to deny me because you have to outlive me. And having me die tonight or tomorrow and you die right alongside me. Oh, I'll have two thieves beside me. I don't want a chief apostle next door. You've got to live. And in order to do that, you're going to have to swallow hard and deny that you're connected to me. No matter how much every piece of your bold personality wants to jump back into a fight. No, thou shalt. Now, some people say that's what President Kimball was suggesting. It isn't. He wasn't putting those words in Jesus' mouth. But he was trying to explain other possibilities for Peter. And maybe the thought of, I, I, some of those thoughts may have come into Peter's mind. Not that Jesus was commanding me to do it, but rather, I have to. There's no other way. Were these bitter tears of recognizing weakness or, or admitting weakness, or were they bitter tears of recognizing responsibility? And I, I can't, I have, what am I supposed to do? And caught between a rock and a hard place, the rock and the ultimate hard place to be, I, I swear, I curse. I'm not with him, at least not right now, where I wish I could be. I don't know him, at least not the way the world has to know him. I swear I will be converted, fully changed by him, but I have to live long enough for him to make those changes. But once transformed, you better believe I'll strengthen my brethren. You better believe I'll follow him to the grave. I will be his rock. But today that means saying, I'm not when down deep I know I am. That seems to be what Elder Kimball is suggesting. He says, this was a critical moment. Peter's act of protection with his sword slashing had been after this prediction was made. He had tried. He had seen one apostle betray his master with a kiss, and his master had not repulsed him. Peter had been reminded that angels could be summoned if protection was needed. He had been commanded to put away his sword. Even now he did not desert his master, but followed sorrowfully behind the jeering crowd. He would remain to the end. He likely heard every accusation, saw every indignity heaped upon his Lord, felt all the injustice of the mock trial, and noted the perfidy of false witnesses perjuring their souls. He saw them foully expectorate in the face of the Holy One. He saw them buffet, strike, slap, and taunt him. He observed the Lord making no resistance calling for no protective legions of angels, asking for no mercy. What was Peter to think now? Elder Kimball admitted, 
I do not pretend to know what Peter's mental reactions were, nor what compelled him to say what he did that terrible night. But in light of his proven bravery, courage, great devotion, and limitless love for the master, could we not give him the benefit of the doubt and at least forgive him as his Savior seems to have done so fully? Almost immediately, Christ elevated him to the highest position in his church and endowed him with the complete keys of that kingdom. So where does that leave us? What does Elder Kimball conclude? Simon Barjona did not have long to consider the matter or change his decisions, for he now heard the cock crow twice and was reminded of Christ's prediction. He was humbled to the dust. Hearing the bird's announcement of the dawn reminded him not only that he had denied the Lord, but also that all the Lord had said would be fulfilled, even to the crucifixion. He went out and wept bitterly. Were his tears for personal repentance only, or were they mingled with sorrowful tears in realization of the fate of his Lord and Master and his own great loss? I do love what Elder Kimball is saying there. Whether it was weakness or strength, or most likely a combination of the two, yes, I see myself in Simon, but hope someday to see myself in Peter. I, I can't wait to see his ministry unfold in the book of Acts. And in his epistles, he's a new, transformed, fully converted soul that Jesus trusted, that trusted the, king, the keys of the kingdom to. That should give us hope. That in our denials of the divinity within us, there is hope for repentance. And I pray that when we do not live up to the Lord's expectations and when we succumb to the natural man or woman, or woman within, I hope we'll have the courage to look into the courtyard and see Jesus looking out at us, still bearing the blood stains that taught him what it's like to be weak that taught him to empathize with perfect understanding why we're not as strong as we need to be. Please keep in mind what Jesus had just done for Peter and for all of us in the garden. And it's back in that garden I'd like to end. I spent so much time there when I was a student studying abroad in Israel. It seemed like on the Sabbath we always had extra free time, and it's a quick walk from the Jerusalem Center on the Mount of Olives, Mount Scopus technically, but it's part of the range, the Mount of Olives. A quick walk down the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. There's a part that is more touristy, a chapel, Church of All Nations right there. It's beautiful, but crowded. And then across the little dirt road is an enclosed garden 
that somehow the owners always took pity on <laughs> BYU students and always let us in. And I had so many hours spent in the garden, especially on holy Sabbaths, to just ponder, to pray, to study my scriptures, to listen to the entire garden oratorio from Michael McLean and Bryce Newbert, Merrill Jensen. I've talked to you about that before. But just time spent there trying to understand what Jesus went through in that sacred space for me. Recently, I stumbled across a poem by Darlene Young, who's an English professor at BYU. Great gifted talent. And she wrote a poem about Gethsemane that in very few words describes something so beautiful as far as what the Savior was going through. She wrote, Oh, how is a human to comprehend godly heartbreak? Might as well teach a point on a line about temples and spires, about stars. It's a matter of dimension, impossible geometry. What we know. He went to a place. He knew that ahead of him was a pain yet unknown in the world, extra-dimensional. That seeing it, he, who had maybe never known fear before this, asked to be excused. But not really. We know the contemplation of that pain was so terrible, it required the ministration of an angel before it could be approached. We know at point zero, he was left alone in a way no human can comprehend. We know he came out on the other side, gentle, generous, quieter. Forever after, he would say very little about it. Only shrink. Only nevertheless. In some ways, it's that last word. Nevertheless. It needs to echo in our ears and sound within our souls for the rest of eternity. That the mortal side of Jesus wanted to shrink, but the divine side would not let him. And so nevertheless was his watchword. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That's a word we have to add to our vocabulary that we have to engrave it into the fleshy tables of our hearts so that any time our will rises against the Lord's, we can answer it with a nevertheless. To do so, I think we'll need to spend more time in Gethsemane. That we need to be drawn there and go oft times, as was said of Jesus. One of those times, the oft times that I went to Jerusalem, or excuse me, that I went to Gethsemane when I was in Jerusalem, I was there on a day when a bunch of LDS tours, I guess, happened to be in town. And as I was sitting there for the, I don't know, second or third hour in the garden, the gate opened and they let in another group of Latter-day Saint tourists. I could tell they were tourists because I could hear their tour guide explain to them a little bit about Gethsemane, uh, give the, the tourist spiel, that's oh, better than that. That doesn't do it justice. But explain what the garden meant. Spend a few minutes describing the atonement that took place there. And then saying to the, to the assembled tourists, and this is the part that broke my heart. The tour guide said, 
I'm sure you would all want some personal time here. So please feel free to take it. But please be back on the bus in five minutes because we got to get on to our next site. And when he said five minutes, my heart broke because I'd already been there for hours. And I'd been there the Sabbath before and I'd probably come back again the Sabbath after. And I just thought, how do you squeeze eternity into five minutes? Well, in a way, Jesus did. It would have been hours between coming up for air and going back to the disciples, but to squeeze the infinite and the eternal into finite time and sacred space. I don't know what they did for those five minutes, but I knew it forced me to take my hours a little more seriously. To not take them for granted, but to understand what a gift it was that Jesus had given me in Gethsemane. In fact, before I left Jerusalem, my dad sent me a letter. And in it he said, you know, son, I'm jealous. I may never get to Jerusalem. And because of that, would you please go and spend some time in Gethsemane for me? I'll always remember those words. And so sure enough, one of my last Sabbaths, I went back to Gethsemane and just spent some time there for my father. In some ways, that's what Jesus did for us all. He spent some time in Gethsemane for all of us. And he spent some time in Gethsemane for his father, too, because it was his father's will that he suffer there. To drink the bitter cup, not to shrink, which is exactly what Jesus did. I bear solemn testimony of what took place there in the garden. I testify because of personal experience that guilt can be swept away, can be washed down the Kidron River through the blood of Jesus. I bear witness of him humbly and gratefully. I testify that he spent time in Gethsemane, not just for all of us collectively, but for you individually. And, as I, and I pray that as a result of that time spent, for us, we will spend some time there for him, coming to know the Lord of life as he approached the doors of death. The garden awaits, my friends, and if you'll come there, you will find Jesus. <laughs>